Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Melissa Bresnahan. Melissa grew up in Long Beach, California, where she earned a BA in speech communications and English and a master's degree in educational administration, along with several California state teaching credentials. She met her amazing husband, Dan, when she was in college, and they have been married almost 40 wonderful years. They have three grown children and are the grandparents to the most adorable three-year-old little girl. Melissa and her family live in beautiful central coast of California, and Melissa was a teacher and a principal for almost 35 years. Melissa's firstborn child, a son, died tragically in 2017 at the age of 35. After many years of struggling with addiction and four wonderful years of sobriety, her son, Pat, relapsed and died from a drug overdose. She and her family have been determined to remember Pat forever in their hearts and lives by adopting their family motto, Forever a Family of Five. Please enjoy my good friend, Melissa, on episode 19. Let's do this. Melissa, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you coming down and uh, and being willing to step into the the booth, the Thank podcast you. booth. Happy to be here. You know, we've we've been talking, and and you were talking about potentially, you know, going back and forth with the decision to share your story, and you know, hearing hearing my dad tell his story and that being a difficult thing for you. What yep. made you? change your mind and be here? Well, I think the road I've traveled with my son and his addiction and then losing him uh, a little over two years ago to to an overdose after four years of sobriety has been a, a difficult road. And I would like to be able to share my ideas and thoughts and experiences with other people in the hope that it might help them with a, a similar journey or help them understand others that are going through a similar journey. There is so much addiction, and if anybody can understand it better or think in a way that doesn't, that's not judgmental and stigmatize addiction and, oh, you know, he's an addict. He's, you know, he had a bad home, must have had terrible parents. Nobody loved him. They were poor. They were, you know. Whatever the... Yeah, because I don't think it's that way. Yeah. Yeah. That wasn't your experience. And and so you were you were a principal. Wait, yes. we were talking about this. So so you have three children. Yes. And you were a principal and your husband was a police officer. Yes. <laughs> so so your son your son grew up uh with with the uh Mr. and Mrs. Dudley Do Right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. And uh and how old uh, what's the age spread between the kids? Um Pat was, when I had my third, Pat was eight when the youngest was born, Megan. So there's eight years difference there. And then Caitlin's kind of right in the middle. She's, there's almost three years difference between Pat and Caitlin. Okay. And then five years between Caitlin and Megan. Okay. Okay. And you guys lived in San Luis? We live in Atascadero, which is the the next town over Over. the grade. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. And when you look back, what kind of kid... 
was Pat and what did mm-hmm. you what did you see you know you, you heard in, in my dad talking you know things that he saw that mm-hmm. he, he looks back on and goes oh gosh we had no idea what that was or mm-hmm. were there things that he did that you guys were like oh Pat um, or things like that that in retrospect you look at and you go oh maybe that was some of the stuff yeah. we saw yeah you know I think and I don't know why I think this because I look at my brother and I and we're so different same mom and dad my three kids are so different, so individual. But I think I thought all my kids were going to be the same and they were going to be like me or like my husband. Right. Or so, <laughs> I so, think that too. Yeah. <laughs> so, and so I look at my three kids. So Pat was born, you know, kicking and screaming and fighting the world. Caitlin was born just quiet and sweet and angelic. And Megan was born looking around, trying to figure out what's this and what's that. And that's their personalities. Yeah. That is the, you know, from the moment they were born, that's their personalities. And Pat was, um, he was born in 82. And Dan and I had been married about two years. And he was a crier Mm. and a screamer. And and I couldn't always soothe him. (laughs) Yeah. And that was... I know that part. Yeah. Yeah. And that... uh, you know, I think idealistically thinking I was, you know, babies are, you know, pink and blue blankets and mm. cute toys and, you know, and there's a oh, they bit more to, you. to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I learned a lot yeah. about parenting. And um, were you a teacher yet? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was already a teacher. And Dan and I were able to work at our schedules. So when Pat was young, he really didn't have to do a whole lot of daycare. Okay. And he was a voracious eater. Yeah, he's well, he he a big six, man. Six three to 250. Yeah. Big kid. And uh, was always a big kid. And I think your dad said something about self-soothing, and mm-hmm. I never I never maybe put it into those terms. But now that I'm a grandmother, I see my little granddaughter, you know, she can put herself to sleep. And, yeah. you know, and Pat screamed and yelled a lot and cried a lot. And, and I think it was called, you know, being colicky, right. which I don't really understand what that is. So so he cried a lot, didn't sleep a lot. And then I would say by the time he was, well, the first time he was sick, he was only two or three weeks old. I took him to a Christmas party so he could sit in Santa's lap and the stomach flu was going around. So he got the stomach flu. Oh, no. And then I got the stomach flu. Oh, no. And then he was probably four months old and he started getting ear infections. Yeah. Which I had ear infections and very vivid memories of ear infections, and they're very painful yeah. and uncomfortable. Yeah. And that just broke my heart as a mom. So he went through that for years. Several sets of tubes in his ears. Mm-hmm. He always popped them out. But just chronic ear infections, waking up in the middle of the night, me sleeping with him up over my shoulder mm-hmm. when he was two, three, four, because it was easier. He yeah. eventually got a mastoid infection. And had to must be jaw related. It's the 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 bone the right the connection bone behind, behind, the behind ear. your ear and okay. so and and the doctor says the next place the infection will go is his brain. So he was in the hospital. I was pregnant, like six months pregnant. He was in the hospital on massive doses of antibiotics, and had to have his he had to have his eardrums lanced several times. So mm-hmm. so that that's a big part. Yeah, and then and then he always everybody else would get a cold. He would get bronchitis. He yeah. would be you know he was on inhalers. He was you know asthmatic. He would get pneumonia. Like the first time I heard that, you know, pneumonia is like who gets pneumonia? Yeah, he had pneumonia all the time. He just had a a sick respiratory system. 
and um, the earaches finally went away, but he had he had the the cough and the through throughout his life. Yeah, yeah, and he he was very adventuresome little boy. He had little temper tantrums. I remember I when Caitlin was a little older, I took her on the back of the bicycle because I couldn't take him anymore because he was just too big. Yeah. And but he wanted to go and he like flung himself on the steps. I'd already gone. Yeah. And I come back from the bike ride 45 minutes later and no one's home. Well, they're at the emergency room getting his head stitched up. Yeah. You know, because he really wanted to go on the bike. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. was And that was, I mean, there's the piece that he's a little boy, which from my just experience, little boys and little girls are very different. Not always, but mine certainly are than the little girls we see at the park. You know, there's some of that, but you, do you think, did you see a difference between him and other little boys or was he pretty in sync with what was? No, I, I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I do remember maybe he was two or three and I had a great pediatrician. In fact, my granddaughter goes to the same pediatrician. Great. And he would, he would always tell me to read this book or that book. And I remember him telling, Pat was two or three, he said, you should read the book, The Strong-Willed Child. <laughs> and um, it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. And, and I read it, and and it was like this book was, you know, somebody knows my son. Yeah. And that, it, it was eye-opening for yeah. me because I learned a lot. Yeah. But it also made me feel like, well, there's nothing wrong with him. Yeah. This is, this is just how, how he is. Yeah. 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 But he, he was also, he had so many ear infections in the one ear that he, he didn't have an eardrum. Oh, my gosh. In, in, and then it would it would grow back in any way, but he got older and... Did he have hearing problems? Yeah. So he had hearing problems and speech problems. Right. So, um, and I'm a teacher. Right. But, you know, with your boys, you speak their language. So I understood what he was saying. But right. my mother came to visit and she says, Melissa, he he really has a speech problem. And you'd think being a teacher. Right. No, because we understand. We, I was, yeah. There's a meme going around yeah. that's like, that has a joke about like, it has this garbled, you know, something. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and the baby saying, I want garbled something yeah. or something. And, and the, the mom peeks her head around the corner and says, he said he wants yogurt. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah, that's accurate. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so he, you know, he went to a speech and language therapist and was tested and we did some speech and language therapy and, you know, but it was also around that time, three, four, five, he was born in November and that was back when. Kinder, the date for kindergarten was like December first, yeah. and I had to make a decision. I always thought, oh, kids are ready for kindergarten when they're ready for when they're the age. right age. Yeah, but we did end up holding him out a year because he was in a, a pre-K program, and she just thought he needed another another year. year. And so we we did hold him out of kindergarten for a year, which I think was a really good move. But it was you know those ages that we discovered he did have some more serious learning disabilities. Yeah. And uh, our pediatrician really helped us. He sent us to a neurologist. And they really couldn't pinpoint exactly what it was, but it was something neurological. Okay. So once he got into school, we went through all the testing and and whatnot. And it was, you know, like a language processing problem. Yeah. And um, ADD, more, more, not so much H, but ADD, Mm -hmm. very, um, could be very inattentive and very impulsive. Right. Which is not the teacher's favorite child to have in the classroom. Right, right. Um, so, 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 I mean, did you have, did you have a new, respect is the wrong word, understanding? Yeah, I, 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 I attribute 
Pat and the way he the way he was to making me a better teacher. Yeah. Because again, you know, you go into life being very idealistic. Yeah. And, you know, I thought, you know, I'm gonna teach it to all these little darlings one time and they're gonna get it. And yeah. That's that's not how it was. So I think he, he made me a much better teacher and because I went through he was in special ed. Yeah. He wasn't in a special day class. He was in like a pullout program. Yeah. Which he called by second grade the stupid class. And he didn't want to go to the stupid class. Yeah. And how come, you know, Joey sitting next to him, how come Joey knows what to do when the teacher says something? And I don't know. How do you explain that? You know? Yeah. So, but he always loved sports and being active and, yeah. you know, wanted to have the ball. And so then he was labeled a bully because he just wanted the ball. You know, and there was some bullying going on there. Yeah. But yeah, so it, he was, he was not, he was not. An easy child to raise, but I do have a just to. Um, I mean, that makes me sound like a horrible mother. Why? I literally heard nothing of. This. Well, thank you. I think because uh, here, let me help. I have really difficult children to raise. There you go. And I feel like a great mother. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe I just didn't understand that, yeah. or but I I remember, and I was thinking about this last night, and when we're talking about being the parent of a child who has an addiction problem, I don't know how it would compare to having a a parent or a sibling mm-hmm. or because that's not my experience. Right. But I remember Dan worked funny hours. So I was home a lot in the evenings with, with Pat and he probably wasn't three or four weeks old and I was nursing him. And, you know, I had said he got sick right away mm-hmm. and had the stomach flu. Then I had the stomach flu. So so that may have delayed our bonding just a little bit. But I remember one night I, I nursed him. You know, he had the little milk dripping out of mm-hmm. his mouth. And he fell asleep. And I had him up up on my shoulder burping him. And his little head was turned toward me. And I just remember, I can just feel it, his little cheek right here. And you could their little sweet, milky breath. And his little velour, navy blue velour outfit. And I remember thinking... This is the most wonderful feeling I've ever had in the whole wide world. And I love my parents and I love my children and I love my dogs and my friends, but I love my kids. Yeah. And a parent's love is unlike any other kind of love. And I I don't think I knew it at the time, but I think that set me up for that unconditional love. This is my kid. Yeah. My baby. Yeah. He depends on me. I remember feeling... Power, I don't know if that's the right word. Important. Kind of like important, powerful, because I could get him to stop crying when I had an earache. He didn't want Dan. He wanted me, and I could get him up, and and I thought that was a powerful feeling, Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah. But there's nothing else. I mean, I love chocolate and (laughs) good food and all kinds of things, but the feeling you have for your kids, and you're a mom. Yeah. And I don't know. I didn't get that until that moment. Yeah. So what was the moment or talk to me about the chapter that was like, oh, there's maybe there's this is not normal. There's something Pat may have a problem. I don't know what the problem, you know, as my dad says, yeah. like, I didn't know what the problem was. Yeah. I just knew something was wrong. Yeah. Well, just, you know, school is just never easy. Yeah. And being that I, I was a teacher and eventually a principal and then a teacher again, I, you know, I, and I would have to go to his IEP, individual education plan meetings, and 
I had to go into that meeting and say, I am here as Pat's mom. I am a mom. I'm sitting in this chair as a mom. The day before, I might have been sitting in the chair as the teacher, or, yeah. but I'm a mom. And because I think I went through a few meetings where I wanted everybody to get along and everything, you know, and, but I knew my kid and I didn't want, I wanted my input to be important about what his needs were. I would think so, you'd have more clout in an IEP um, as a teacher and a principal. But. No, I think you know too much. Yeah, yeah, You yeah. know, I'm sure they had meetings before meeting with me. Yeah, okay. Like, because we have to manage this one. Yeah. You know, because I, yeah. I knew the laws and I knew that if his needs needed to be met. Yeah. You know, if you don't have enough room in this program or that program, I don't care. Yeah. Whether it's my kid or a student, it's like... This yeah. is what this child needs. So yeah, yeah. So ha, so at what point w- did you did you start to realize that this was more than just difficult? Yeah, spirited as we as yeah. the new term is by the way. Strong willed is now spirited. Yeah. Well, he was. Um, you know, he went through through junior high, and I think it was in junior high when he and I don't remember all the details and circumstances, but there was some pot smoking going on. Which still, I thought that happens. Yeah, he was I very. Mean, just yeah. kidding. If my kids hear this, that doesn't. It's not real. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was really into sports and athletics and excelled there. Seemed to get a lot of self esteem from that. You know, he would do anything for the coach. I, I mean, he. You could really see him wanted to please. Wanted to please because he wanted to be first string. Mm-hmm. He did not want to be. The bench be the sitter, yeah. and, you know, and it was something that he he could excel in. So, so he did really really well in sports. And my husband was also really into sports. He went to Cal Poly on a football scholarship. So when drinking started going on, probably you know eighth grade, then pretty heavy in high school. You know, it was something that you know relatively normal for yeah, the, that, yeah. yeah. But I I always thought it was excessive. Okay, and and I. Remembered partying, yeah, in high school, you know, have a beer or some vodka, and I never liked the way it made me feel. I would get sick easily, right? Sick to my stomach easily. I don't think alcohol likes me, <laughs> and um, but I never, it wasn't excessive. So, so through high school, which was I think a blur at times because I'm working full time, Dan's working full time, we have two girls, all the activities that go with that. Pat's sports and up, up where I live, it wasn't like you went across town to go to the game. You went to Bikersfield or, <laughs> or, oh my gosh, or San Inez or, oh, you know, so yeah, I'd like, get off work at three, load the girls up and we'd pick up Dan on the way out of town and we'd have to go to Lompoc, which is an hour and a half drive. Right. And, and um, you know, but it was important to be at his games. And yeah. um, I just re- remember a lot of drinking yeah. and then it, you know, it's kind of a blur. But a lot a lot of drinking, a lot of coming home late. We started to get calls from the police. Okay, okay. When did you turn to Dan and say, I think our son has a problem? Or look at him and both of you knew, yeah. like, we, this has crossed the line. We weren't on the same page yeah. through a lot of high school. And, and I, you know, and I tried to get Pat into counseling. Okay. You know, I mean, I think he sat, you know, got suspended from school a lot. For what were what were his suspensions for? You know, being disobedient or rude yeah. or this or that, and then eventually he got suspended his senior year after basketball season for having potted school. But he 
He stayed on the straight and narrow, especially during sports time, because that was really important to him. Right. Was he not drinking or smoking pot? He was. I th- right. But he was back able. On it, he was but able. he was able to. Uh, yeah. And I think it was his freshman year. I think he got suspended. And then when you get suspended, you're put on activity yeah. suspension. And I can't remember what he was suspended for. Anyway. And the and. And so he had to sit out of the football season, and he didn't like that. Yeah. So he he was he played basketball, football. He played baseball, but eventually dropped that. Basketball was his big sport. He was uh, you know like on the all county team. I think his junior year and senior year for basketball. I think maybe for football too. And he was the most valuable player his senior year for basketball. And then shortly after that. Basketball. Well, he'd already moved out of the house. He at what age? Uh, he turned eighteen. Remember, we held him out of kindergarten. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He turned eighteen November of his senior year. Yeah. And so he kind of thought he was his own boss so, at that point. So he just moved out. Yeah. It was. It was midway through basketball. I think we finally set up a rule that when you're in our house, you can't do anything. You can't do anything illegal. But you won't live here anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So, um, and I remember. God, so stupid at times. I remember, you know, getting the kids loaded up in the car to get to school and walking through the garage garage several times saying, God, it really smells like marijuana in here. And Pat would say, oh, you know, it's all dad's chemicals. And and I, so one night I got up and went to get a drink of water or something. And I could see that the girl from the kitchen window, the garage lights were on. So I thought, oh, Dan left the lights on. Go out there, open the door. I mean, it is just yeah. A plume of smoke is coming out of there. Yeah. And there was another young man who was staying with us for like a week because his parents kicked him out. Right. So and they were sitting there just yeah. smoking away. And and I like I looked, I just remember looking, going, like I I'm comprehending this, but I'm not getting it. Yeah. And and I went and got Dan and, you know, a fight ensued and and, and he moved out um to and his girlfriend's parents Took him in. Took him in, and he lived there probably a year. I want to go back to an idea just mm-hmm. in retrospect. Okay. the uh, This idea that you can't do anything illegal. Mm-hmm. And I want to know from – so from, from my perspective, from an alcoholic addict, mm-hmm. whatever, I think to myself the illegal aspect when you look back is, you know, marijuana is now legal. Yeah. And when you were young, alcohol was legal at 18? I don't think so. No? When mm-hmm. my parents were young, 18 was the legal drinking age. Not in California. Really? Mm, I don't think so. Mm-mm. Oh, interesting. Okay, so on the East Coast, my par- I always heard this mm-hmm. growing up. On yeah. the East Coast, my parents said that when they were growing up, 18 was the legal drinking age yeah. where they were. So yeah. you went to college. And, mm-hmm. and so I'm just curious, you know, what, when you look back, do you think that like, was that a, a good line to draw? Would you do it differently? It was not, no. I would do it. I don't know what I would do differently. I would not. I just had such a mindset that, you know, I'm so, I can be so black and white that this is the right thing to do. This is not the right, right. thing to do. Right. And very clearly in my mind, when you're 16, you shouldn't be drinking, smoking, or smoking pot. Right. It's illegal. And I would try to explain to him the cause and effect thing that right. makes sense to me. Right. That, you know, you're doing this now in my garage, but if you're doing it 
here or here or here, you're going to get suspended from school, right, expelled right, right, from okay, school. You're okay. going to get arrested. You're going to. So it's really about. Okay, okay, that actually that that yeah. helps me because it was really about the the fact that when you do these things. So you were thinking from a perspective of when you do these things that are illegal, that causes you legal problems. So you're thinking about it in the societal, yeah. not actually the substance per se. Right, not as much at least. Yeah, because I didn't even. I don't even think I was an awa- aware of addiction. Right. Uh, that or that was even. No, but that's really yeah. interesting. That's a really interesting for, for me, at least. That's yeah. really interesting. Like we don't want you doing anything illegal. Right. Yeah. So it was really about breaking the law. It wasn't really about being intoxicated. Well, I didn't want him you didn't to like be, that. I didn't want him to be intoxicated. But your cause and effects had a lot to do with getting in trouble with society. Yes. Yes. And I didn't want him to be drunk. <laughs> yes. I didn't want him to smoke pot. I didn't want him to smoke cigarettes. Yeah. That's nasty. Yeah. That's dirty, you know, and with with living in a small town, yeah. he couldn't get away with anything because, yeah. you know, someone Everybody. else is driving their kid, picking their kid up from school and there's Pat walking off campus smoking a cigarette or didn't doing, you know. Didn't help that his dad was a police officer. No. <laughs> no. And so, you know, he 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 couldn't get away with anything. Yeah. Because it's like, "Oh, Melissa, I just saw Pat." I mean, teachers would call me at work, this was before cell phones, you know, on the school phone, yeah. you know, connect yeah, yeah. me with room 12. Just wanted you to know, we just saw Pat walking off campus. And you're like, great, that's really helpful. Yeah. Well, you know, and it was not, you know, but then I could go, you know, oh, how was school today? Oh, fine. Well, what'd you do? Yeah. It's like, oh, well, you were at, you know, Jack in the Box and you were supposed to be at school. It's like, huh? you know, so. Right. So it's like. Yeah, but it didn't seem to matter to him. It didn't seem, and I was, I don't know, people pleaser or, you know, I had that sense of right and wrong and I didn't want to disappoint my parents. And, yeah. and did it help um, that people were caught? Like I, I'm, I'm putting myself in your mm-hmm. shoes. Like I have this problem. I have, I have this thing going on at home with this kid and it's really public because every people are calling me yeah. in my classroom at work saying your child is walking off. Like, other teachers, right? Like yeah. pointing it out. No, to I me. don't think I don't think that it was public bothered me. I think I appreciated knowing. Okay. Okay. So yeah. that yeah, because I think for a long time he pulled the wool over so my you felt eyes. Supported by it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Even even when he relapsed. Yeah. I mean, I look back on it and it's like all the signs were there, but when it was happening, he. So the addict Pat was masterful at pulling the wool over my eyes. When was the first time that you guys decided to try to get him help? Well, I or what was the catalyst yeah, for that? I talked a lot about it in in when he was in high school, even for substance abuse. You know, I don't know if I thought it was just for substance abuse, but for a troubled teen. You yeah. know, I have a troubled yeah. teen. Yeah, and, troubled teen. And if you look in the back of Wicked. Sunset Magazine, yeah. they have places where you send your troubled your teen. troubled teen, and they take them on hikes. And yep. and I and I thought, <laughs> they take them yeah, on hikes. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. I thought <laughs> there were times I thought we needed to send him away. Yeah, but I didn't get a lot of support. You heard my dad talk about that too. Yeah, yeah, and um, that it was just a phase he was going through, yeah. and everything was going to be fine. And so, but I but I remember thinking he needed help way back. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and there were, oh, lots of situations. You know, he was sneaking out of the house and would be gone all night. I had no idea. 
Yeah. I had no idea until yeah. the police called one night yeah. and said, oh, we have your son here in the back of our car. And I said, no, you don't. He's sleeping downstairs. And, you know, I'm running down the stairs. Yeah. You know, pillows in the bed. Yeah. Windows unlocked. And I stayed home with the girls and Dan went to pick him up. And, and it was interesting that he was not intoxicated because Dan gave permission to breathalyze him. He was not intoxicated because their plan was foiled. So his friend, they weren't quite 16, took his mom's car, this old station wagon, and they just wanted to be out driving around, you know. And they discovered maybe like at 11 o'clock, there's not a whole lot going on in this town. And they didn't want to be downtown. So they were out on the back roads and they were, I found this out many years later, they were going out to someone's house because they knew this girl's dad had a bunch of beer in the refrigerator and they were going to get the beer. And the dog barked or this or that. So yeah. they never did get, get the beer. So then, and that's way out of town. So then they're driving back in and uh, the driver, they both have, have to go to the bathroom. So the driver gets out of the car and they're, they're they watch, and Pat's going to go to the bathroom too. They watch the car go. They, no. Yeah, because he didn't put the parking brake on. Oh, God. Yeah. And it wasn't a, it wasn't like, you know, <laughs> a 90 foot cliff. It was down to a creek. Oh, boy. Big, you know, big old, you know. Esquire station wagon with the plastic wood panels yeah, yeah. on the side. So then they right into the creek. Yeah, yeah. So i so it didn't like go airborne. Yeah. It just rolled right yeah, down yeah. there. Well, and they couldn't get it out of there. So um, <laughs> oh, but I you think know they when, tried. Oh yeah, they tried. They tried. <laughs> oh, and yeah. what grows around creek beds? Poison oak. So um, yeah. So they tried and and. A house heard, the police got called, the uh, car's down there, they call the Trotuck, they uh, get the two boys up there, put them in the back of the car, the parents get there, they get yeah. breathalyzed. They weren't drunk. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but they wished they were. <laughs> yeah, they probably wished they were. And, uh, you know, the tow truck, I think it cost $300 to pull yeah. the car out. Oh, yeah. And um, so he had to go do hard labor over at his friend's house for a long time. <laughs> but, like, four days later, I get this call at school. Mom. You got to come pick me up. It's like, well, why? Well, I got really bad poison oak, mom. So I go pick him up, get off, you know, get a, they get a substitute, go pick him up. It's all in his, his private parts. Yeah. And, um, and he, it was bad. <laughs> and I didn't feel sorry for him one bit. Oh, it's so funny. My, um, one time we stole, my sister and I stole a bottle of port wine uh -huh. and not knowing what port was. And, uh, we stole it out of the, the pantry and, we drank the whole bottle and got incredibly sick and uh -huh. vomited up all over each yeah. other and had the spit. Yeah. It was really bad. And so he comes down and it's poor, you know, it's red port everywhere, yeah. like vomit. And my dad walks into the room and my sister and I are laying on the bed totally out of it. Yeah. And he says, he looks at us and he says, well, the punishment fits the crime. I'll yeah. leave you two here and, yeah. and uh, walks out. We never got punished. He said, yeah. you, you, you know, you got what you deserved. Like, yeah. if that doesn't show you, I'm not yeah. sure why being grounded will. Yeah. So sounds and like my the way I was <laughs> when I, w I, you know, drank in high school, threw up. I didn't like that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a normal human response. I would not drink port wine again or I would right. not. You know, I didn't drink port wine. I've never had yeah. port wine since. Well, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> but I've had a lot of other ones. So hence the alcoholism. Yeah, so I just, you know, and there were there were a lot of. And so that I look back now on, you know, that was a yeah. pretty funny story at the time, but it was... Okay, it was a big deal. Yeah. It was not funny. And I, yeah, so I knew he needed help and just 
busy, caught up, you know, it's like, let's get through another day. I do remember him coming home at night. He didn't drive till he was like 18. I, and I don't think if he wanted to, we would have let him drive much. So he didn't drive till he was like eight, 18, out of high school, really. But I remember always being relieved when he when I'd hear somebody drop him off at night. Yeah. But there were many nights where, you know, two, three, four. I mean, a curfew was nothing to him. Yeah. You know, and I was panic-stricken when I was his age. If it was two minutes after midnight, I was panicked. I don't know why. So, um, yeah, so lots of, you know, I can't, I can't remember them all, but lots of trouble, you know, getting tickets for smoking. But then just he had, getting, he had you know. an injury, right? Yeah. His drinking got really bad after high school. And he was, he was um, you know, all kids go to college, right? Yeah. I didn't, but... Yeah. Well, eventually you did. <laughs> yeah, eventually. Eventually I did, yes. Well, I just thought that's what you do. Yeah. That's I'm, what I did. Yeah. That's what my husband my did. My parents thought so So he went to, you know, had been living with a girlfriend. He went to Allen Hancock College for maybe a semester and maybe finished three units. And I don't know what was going on, but we can all well imagine. Yeah. And then he started working for his girlfriend's father, and he became a bricklayer. And he worked, I think, for about seven years doing that. Oh, wow. So from... 18 to like 24, a mm-hmm. lot of drinking. Yeah. Like, like drink, um, like day yeah. drinking, a lot of, mm-hmm. and a lot of drinking. And did he live nearby? He lived nearby. And you had and, contact. And we had, con- we actually <clears throat> talk about enabling. We actually bought a, there's a little uh, older trailer park in town where you own the property. Mm-hmm. And, um, as, and and people are now moving in, you know, the nicer homes and whatnot. So we thought, you know, instead of him having to pay rent and whatnot, well, then he did pay rent to us. But we bought this little place that had, you know, this dilapidated single-wide trailer on it that he lived in for about two years. And then Dan and Pat worked on, they put a double-wide in, and they built on the garage, and Pat did a yeah, lot of the work. They did very the cement handy. work. And, yeah, he was good about that. So, you know, things were... Good. He had a good job. He never needed money from us. He paid the, you know, the rent, took care of himself. He could come over for dinner. It was, it was nice, but he, you know, he would pound down the beers. Yeah. And, and a lot, a lot of arrests, a lot of, and it really, it just made me sick. A lot of arrests for uh, a lot of getting beat up, bars, you know, we, sometimes we'd get a call from. This was after he turned 18, but you Between knew. 18 and, and like 23, 24. But you knew because your husband was an investigator, so it popped up. Yeah, either that or we'd get a courtesy call. Oh, okay. That, yeah. And we never bailed him out. We never, never did, you know, you do the crime, you do the time. <laughs> and and it, was, it was a lot. It was a lot of arrests. So it got to the point where they put him on probation or something, yeah. and he had to wear an ankle bracelet. And he never had a DUI. He had a BUI in a boat, our boat. He used to take our boat out. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah. But he never had a DUI. And I'm not saying that he never got behind the wheel drunk, because yeah. I'm sure he did. And thank God there weren't any accidents that hurt him or somebody else. But um, lots of drunken publics, lots of fights, lots of getting beat up, lots of, lots of arrests for, for, I know there's not a law against being an asshole, but I really think <laughs> that's what he was arrested for, because, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because, <laughs> but, yeah, 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 like, yeah, nobody wants to. Yeah, Penal Code 36940. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
He, <laughs> he, you know, everybody else would be drunk and miserable or drunk and happy or whatever, but he would get belligerent. Right. He right. would mouth Take off. He would, yeah, yeah. Or he would, you know, get um, tough or, yeah. you know. And so, so, you know, he got arrested for being drunk in public, but, but was, there were a lot of people like on the 4th of July yeah. that were drunk in public. Yeah. So, yeah. And um, I think his girlfriend's dad got him out a few times or, but we, we never did. And, and the, he spent time in jail, you know, a couple weeks here, a couple weeks there, but he finally had to go in, on to probation and he asked help because it, it, was expensive. He yeah. Had to, so the, he did the ankle bracelet and he had some kind of a phone at home where you had to be videotaped at, or they'd call him and he had to like respond mm-hmm. right away mm-hmm. or I don't remember all of it. And he had to go to meetings through the county and he, I don't think he was really good at following through with all of that. So he just got into more trouble and more trouble. And, um, but he did start drinking less. He did start yeah. drinking less. And I think that, looking back on I think that was when he was doing, starting to do drugs more mm. and not so much drinking. And then the probation officers came one night, and he was doing really well. We just put the new house on. He was doing that. He was still working with the masonry, and he had a really nice girlfriend, and he'd maybe had two beers, and they took him in, locked him up. I mean, no drinking is no drinking. Right. And it got to the point wherever he had to go to court. And I never went to court. Maybe I think there was one time I went because my husband worked for the district attorney's office. The district attorney couldn't. It was a conflict Conflict of of interest. interest, And so they had to call someone from the Department of Justice to come down. Oh, geez. Yeah. So he just always just had the book slammed on him. And so but and that was the time that when they put him in jail, and here I thought he was doing really, really well. And I kiss with two beers, you know, it's like two beers isn't that bad, you know? Yeah. Six months ago, he was having, you know, 10 shots and 20 beers, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and Dan and I fought about it, and I went and tried to talk to the probation officer, and I guess you just don't do that. And I felt like a criminal myself, and I, I didn't know what to do, and I knew he was really in trouble then. So I went downtown and walked into a law office and, you know, crying, said, I need, I, I need a lawyer. My son's in trouble. I don't know any lawyers. He's in jail. This is what he did. And they said, oh, well, you should go see the lawyer down the street. So I walked into that office just, you know, just yeah. was totally out of control. Just, you know, just I need help. He yeah. needs help. I'm I'm having problems at home with my husband, the, you know. And and I remember the lady, I said, he's he's um, he's on, uh, they won't let us talk to him. They won't this, they won't that, they won't, you know. And um, she said, well, and she kind of was Southern. And she said, well, honey, you know, he'll be right, the lawyer will be right, right with you. But while we're waiting, and she got me like a cup of water and Kleenex. She says, but while we're waiting, watch this. And she picks up the phone. And she says, and calls the probation department. She says, hi, this is so and so when we're representing Patrick. And um, I need this and this, and you need to do that and this and that. And um, yes, he'll be in touch with you soon. And she goes, there, honey, everything's going to be just fine. And so that, and and, <laughs> and, I, and I did have to spend $1,500. Best money justice can buy. Yeah. No, best justice money can yeah. buy. So it was fi- $1,500. 
And I, I went to court. Dan and I were like, like not even speaking. I was sitting there in the audience and, and Dan was, you know, in a suit and tie leaning up against the wall. And I remember I like waved or something to Pat when he comes in, you know, he's in an yeah. orange jumpsuit with clinks and clankers. And, yeah. and I like waved to him or something. And the bailiff came to speak to me because we don't do that. Don't wave at yourself. Oh my yeah. gosh. So, so this particular lawyer really helped with getting him involved in some programs. Yeah. And he continued to wear the thing. And, and he said after that he didn't want to be on probation anymore. So he went and served his time, whatever that was, because he did not want to be on probation anymore. So um, so the drinking kind of got better. So I thought, oh, you know, he's doing better. Right. And then that was right around the time when the there was the big housing crunch and yeah. construction stopped. And so he... The, the business went under, and, you know, this is a business that had been around for like 40 years. This yeah. man took it over from his dad. and yeah. So he did odd jobs for a while, and then he got a job out on the, um, the oil rigs off mm -hmm. the coast of Santa Barbara and was making like $90,000 a year. He yeah. worked out there for about five years, and um, it was right before he got that job, it was... I remember it well because he was still on my insurance until the age of 25. Mm -hmm. And he was, you know, he seemed to be doing better, wasn't partying, wasn't doing the bar scene as much. And he went and uh, was playing on like a city league basketball, totally blew his knee out. Mm. And I remember, I remember he, it was right before his 25th birthday because we got him in to see the doctor that he saw from all his other sports injuries. And I said to him, you know, his insurance is up in two weeks and so if there's a way that we can get all this accomplished by this day. So he did knee surgery and he had, I don't know, I always call it the ACLU and the MIA and the whatever. <laughs> like yeah. three things were yeah. rebuilt and re-this and re-that. And he was um, put on OxyContin. Looking back, I think maybe there was meth started. Uh, and I, I didn't know really until after he passed that meth was a drug of choice for him. So, yeah, so he was laid up with this knee thing and then did the physical therapy. And he was always athletic and went to the gym, bodybuilding, yeah. um, working out with weights. And I remember being at his place and seeing prescription bottles for OxyContin from a different doctor, not the doctor that did his knee surgery. And, you know, and I said, yeah, you know, I'm sure your knee hurts, but I don't think this is a good idea. You know, you shouldn't do this anymore. So uh, then he got the job out on the oil rig, and by that time, I'm, I think maybe the first year, he worked out there five years, so from, from 25 until he went to rehab at 29, Right. I think. I've kind of yeah, got... roughly. And um, I think he, he did pretty well, liked his job, was yeah. making good money, you know, spent a lot of money on drugs. And I found out when, when he finally went to rehab, I found out that... There was a doctor in L.A. that if you take him an x-ray, he will write you a prescription for OxyContin. So he would get uh, for $500, mm -hmm. which was not, you know, that yeah. was not a problem to Pat. So he he was taken Oxy, and this was right around, I think it was right around 2011, and you really didn't hear about the, the op opiate op crisis so much, yeah. and that's when they changed the pharmaceutical companies changed OxyContin because so many people were getting addicted to it. Mm -hmm. And they they changed it chemically so that you couldn't snort or yeah. or 
snort or shoot it, which, you know, my son would never do that. And I'm sure he was. Yeah. I'm sure, I mean, hello. And then that's, I think that's when the big hit of the op- opioid crisis and the heroin started because they changed OxyContin. It wasn't working anymore. And here's your alternative. Yeah. How did you find out, or how did you, you helped him go to rehab, right? Yeah. He, did he go to Gatehouse or Blueprints? He went to Decision Point first. Decision Point, okay. And was there three months and then went to Blueprints. Okay, so yeah. how did you get him to Decision, how did you get him to Arizona for rehab? Yeah. Well, he um, he had to come home from work. Well, he got in trouble once at work. Well, I think the oil rigs, you know, they would have like the feds come with dogs and and I think they found up in the rafters or something, they found all this OxyContin. And he didn't, and they sent him into town to see a doctor and this and that. And But he didn't get fired because it was prescription. Yeah. So then, and that was like around Christmas time. And then in um, January, that's when he always got this horrible bronchitis pneumonia thing. And he, I think Caitlin calls us from the emergency room. She took him to the emergency room, and he had, like, really bad pneumonia, really, really bad. And he was put into intensive care, and I had no idea. Of course, the doctors knew at the time that he was on drugs. And I think, looking back on it, I, I think he didn't want to to go to the doctor because he was so sick because he didn't want to get found out. Yeah. And so, and I never did find out. In fact, even one of the nurses was had a child in my class. Never knew, and I, they asked me to leave the room once or twice because I stayed the night with them, you know. Yeah. And then he he right, came. He's detoxing at the same time as. The oh pneumonia. yeah, and he was really agitated yeah. and really. I mean, the behaviors he was displaying and were his, yeah were, and of course they were giving him morphine. Right. And they gave me morphine for pneumonia. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Anyway, and so I just didn't understand it, but I just I'd never seen this kind of behavior from him. Yeah. So then he came and stayed at our house. For maybe a week. Yeah. But he was in the hospital for a full full week, intensive yeah. care for like four or five days. Wow. So it was shortly after that, I think he he went to work. Oh, it's like he went to work at Christmas and had to come home because he was hurting. Yeah. And I think what he was doing, and I found this out later, was they'd get Suboxone on the street yeah. and take Suboxone. So... You know, so he couldn't really work anymore. Yeah. And then he got the pneumonia. He missed work. I think he went back for one more round of work because you'd go out there two weeks yeah. at a time. So he had to come back. He had to come back. He, I mean, he was at work for three or four days, and he had to come back. And, and some friends of his, kind of some of his old friends, came to see Dan. And Dan went to see Pat, and they had a conversation. And, you know, he said, you have to tell your mom. And so I had a cell phone at that time. I was on my way to the fabric store after work, you know, (laughs) going to buy some fabric. Yeah. And I got this call, and Dan said, hey, I'm over at Pat's. You need to come by. And I said, why? And I could tell, you know. And I wouldn't get off the phone until they told me. And he said the H word, and it was like, like someone just you know, took a bat and hit me in the chest. It was like I couldn't breathe because I never thought. He said Pat's on her- Pat, Pat. Pat's, Pat's shooting heroin. And it was, I mean, I don't think I ate for weeks. It just really, and I went and I went over there. Uh, I went and bought my fabric though first. <laughs> Not because that was important to me, but just because. Had to process. 
I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what it was. But I remember feeling really awkward in the store. Anyway, then I went over there and, you know, and Dan, Dan was just being great and Pat was being great and he needed help and he wanted help. And so, you know, and what do we know? I didn't know anything that I think I wrote in one of my emails that I thought if you go to rehab for 30 days, voila, you're fixed. I mean, I really thought that. I think everybody really, I I had not every, I think a lot of people really think that. I had no clue, no clue. So we, I I have a friend uh, who was in my Bunko group who worked for County Drug and Alcohol Services. So I called her and she, you know, Dan and Pat went in and had an interview the next day and they got him involved in a, you know, whatever the county and outpatient program. And he had to go to individual and group and he saw a nurse and was on Suboxone and a taper of Suboxone, like a two-week taper thing. Yeah. And and he was really thin, like 170 pounds. For wow. Pat, that's his big bone kid was just like, you know, gray and emaciated. This was also right around the time when my daughter got engaged and we had a engagement party planned when all this was happening. And it's like, I don't know if I'm up to that. How do I yeah. gonna I think by that time I was sick of faking it. Yeah. Sick of, not even sick of it. I was at a point where I was unable as a, a parent and a person to function Yeah, because there was so much trauma and I couldn't fix it. You know, you're supposed to take care of your kids as a mother, keep them safe and protected. And so that was, that was tough, but we went ahead and we had the party and I remember Megan coming and she's saying, Mom, someone's upstairs asleep on your bed. She didn't recognize it was Pat. Oh, my gosh. So, and this was maybe just a month after. So he had probably just used. And I think it was the, so, you know, Dan took him in again and tried to, you know, get this county program going. And and then he, Dan went by his house and went in and was, um, and he didn't have a job by that point. And he you know, was looking to see if there were needles or this or that. He didn't find any needles, but in a, in his bathroom, he had like two or three of those orange things full of pot, orange tubs like oh, wow. that you get. Yeah. And Dan was still working at the time. So Dan takes the tubs and takes them to the police department and says, I, f- I, found, I found these, my family's involved. I don't want to go into details, but I don't want this. So there was no arrest or anything. Yeah. And I was really pissed that Dan, there were several times that Dan turned Pat in. And I, that yeah. was not the alternative I liked. I always thought that just caused more problems. But anyway, yeah, lots of turmoil. And Pat, I don't, I don't remember if they confronted each other, but, you know, the pot wasn't his and it was a friend's and he has a medical marijuana card. And so Dan said, well, then tell your friend to go down to the police department with his medical marijuana card and get his pot back. But, you know. That was a big story. Pat was going to be selling this stuff is what he was going to be doing. So we kicked him out of the house. And he loaded up his few belongings and was gone and, like, lived on the streets and in crummy hotels for about about six months, I'd say. And it was almost summer vacation. And, oh, he was working for uh, a – so he was making some money. He was able to go to work. He was working, like, just doing cement or something, minimum wage. And – and I kept running into him, you know, he had he had this big blue truck and I'd run into him and 
see him down, you know, and I, we really didn't have any contact with him at all. And then I heard somebody at Pat, uh, Dan saying something that, you know, they had to interview Pat because he was on some surveillance thing. It was his car. Pat wasn't in it. Money, heroin, you know, and it's like, and he, he wouldn't tell me. It's kind of like, I think they both tried to protect me because mm-hmm. I took everything so hard. Yeah. So there were a lot of things I didn't know about. So I called the officer that interviewed him and wanted to know what was going on. And, you know, I was very agitated. And then I said, I, I got to save my son. And I, I got in my car and I went up to, I heard that he was in Paso Robles and he was at this hotel. And I went there and he wasn't there, but there was someone there who had seen him there. So I just started going to the crummy hotels in Paso Robles. And I mean, by the third one, there's the big blue truck. And so I just went and asked, what room is Pat Bresnahan in? And I went and banged on the door. And, you know, it was, I know somebody was in there with pink hair. You know, I didn't go in the room. He came out. And that was when I knew, and the word I used was junkie. My son is a junkie. And I remember slugging him. And I didn't know what to do. And I said, just get in my car and we'll go. And he wouldn't get in my car. And... You know, and I had been screaming at Dan because he wouldn't tell me the whole thing that went on. And it was summer, and I I uh, got in the car, and I drove down here to Orange County to my brother's because I was broken. Yeah. Dysfunctional. But, uh, couldn't, um, Pat didn't get in the car. No. Yeah. No. And I, I just remember crying, crying the whole way. Just, I have never cried like that. Just and praying. Help me, God, help me. Help me, God. Help me, God. Help my son. Help me. Show me what to do. Help me, you know. And I just went, you know, to my brother's, to the safe haven. He lived in Irvine at the time. And I was there, I don't know, three three weeks, maybe a month. And then Dan came down on the train and took me home. And and I was better, but I was just, just lived in fear. My, you know, my son is going to die any day. So school started up again. My daughter was getting wed- uh, getting married, and Pat knew the guy that lived next door to him. Caitlin was now living in the house, and her future husband, my son-in-law. And we had just been talked to the caterer or something. And I went by the house, and it was funny that Dan went by the house, too. We had separate cars because we came after work. Dan went by. I just thought, oh, I just want to go talk to Caitlin. And Pat was there. I didn't see him. Talking to the to the guy that he knew that lived next door, which is a whole different story. A lot of meth came out of that house, I think. And I didn't see Pat. I walked in, and I guess he said, hi, Mom, to me, and I didn't respond. And, and next thing you know, Pat's knocking on the door. And he said, he came and he sat down, and, and he said, uh, you know, I, I need help. We said, well, you know, do you want to go to rehab? And he said, yeah. I, I don't think... Looking back on it, I don't think he wanted help. I think he had run out of resources. Yeah, that's the same thing. Yeah. Is it? <laughs> it is. Okay. It is. It's that's that's how you get to the point because yeah. there's no you want help because you've run out of resources. Okay. It's like yeah, because you know he had this job yeah. that was paying for all this, and then then no job. Then not, yeah, yeah. And then because it gets was, too hard. Yeah. I mean, he would he would come by Caitlin's occasionally, and she'd make him a bag of food. It was you know, I mean, he was a he was an on the street addict, mm-hmm. junkie. And so, yeah, so we sat down there and I, I said, well, so let's go. So I started like looking through my iPad 
for places. And I called the airport and, you know, we're kind of isolated in San Luis Obispo. The air, airport at that time flew to L.A., San Francisco and Phoenix. So, oh, Phoenix, Arizona. I don't want him in San Francisco. I don't, I don't want him yeah. in California. I don't want him yeah. in the rehab that's in the next town. No. So Arizona, okay, Arizona and Phoenix. I've never been all that impressed with Phoenix. So I just started, and here I see, uh, and I called places. I called places in Utah, called places. He wouldn't go that second. I mean, I wanted to take possession of him, and he wouldn't. He said, I promise I'll go, but give me, like, I don't know. And I had already made, somewhere in there, I'd made a plane reservation for him for the following morning, flying out at 5.30 in the morning or 6.30 maybe. And I don't know if he was going to make it or not. Or, And I think, you know, he went on big drug binge. Yeah. And he would pick up his phone, but then he wasn't picking up his phone. Of course, I didn't sleep at all, but I found Decision Point and liked, Pre- you know, looked up Prescott. I thought, okay, you know, he's, you know, he's from a small town. I don't think he needs to go to the big city. Yeah. So, the and the young man I talked to was, was great. And so he was all set. And I, Again, called my brother in the middle of the night because I was just, you know, and my brother called Pat. Pat picked up the phone and said, yeah, I'm going to go. And Dan met him in front of Caitlin's house at 630 in the morning. He had a bag and Dan went and put him on the plane. And they said, I thought he needed to be escorted, but he said, no, just put him on the plane. It was a direct flight. He had sewn drugs into the the, the thing of his Levi's and luckily he got through and didn't get arrested. Yeah. And uh, I gave him the, this red folder that had the paperwork I downloaded and and he was picked up at the airport and he went to decision point. And it was it was a big relief. Yeah. But I was still of the mindset that, you know, two or three months and he'll be better. Yeah. So that was like October, October, November, December. So like the day after Christmas and he'd like worked up to a level he'd pretty yeah. You know, it took him a month to detox, I think. Yeah, it was, for sure. Yeah. And we um, we got calls. And I remember that, you know, someone would call and I, like, would get a good vibe from them. And then the main person who called, I just didn't get a good vibe from that person. Yeah. I just, I kind of felt like he doesn't really know who I am. I'm probably the 29th call. And he would say, oh, please go to Al-Anon and take care of yourself and... It's like, geez, told me the same thing before. I just didn't feel any connection with him. But anyway, he was at Decision Point, and like the day after Christmas, we're in the movie theater with the girls seeing something, and Pat calls, Dan disappears, and he's gone a while, so then I go out, and he had gotten kicked out of Decision Point. And he, I mean, he, we're talking to this gentleman, that's a nice word, and he, I mean, it was like, here's your bag. And it's like, you know, like, can you hold on to him for 24 hours and give a, you know, we'll get in the car right now. We'll drive. We'll, you know, nothing, nothing. And I just, and and so what had happened is he was at level XYZ where you could walk down to Starbucks and get a coffee if you signed out and were with someone Mm -hmm. who was a level this and a level that anyway. So apparently there were four of them that went to Starbucks and then one of them had a debit card or something, and they went to Staples, and they got computer fume spray, something or rather, and they all got high, and they went back to Decision Point, and they were very understaffed because it was the day after Christmas, and somebody figured it out. I don't remember all the details, and 
so of the four guys, two of them said, okay, we've been found out. We're, we're out of here. And these two guys leave. And one of them had the debit card. They got more, more alcohol and drugs and whatever. And, and the one young man was found dead the next morning on the side of the road. Oh, my gosh. And that had a profound effect on Pat. I think that's the first time, because he had friends and people die, and it was just, well, they're stupid. They don't know what they're doing. And they wouldn't let me talk to him. He was just getting kicked out. He, we, we got sketchy details. So, and I still don't know exactly what happened, but he had heard what happened to this young man. They had not announced it or told anybody yet, and it made him really angry. And then they had some kind of meeting, and the big boss guy from whoever knows came. And, and you know, I don't know how businesses deal with those kind of things. So maybe they did a great job and that, you know, but I think Pat went back to the room and threw something or banged the wall and punched a hole in the wall. So he basically got kicked out for being violent. Right. And then while we're still in the movie theater, the gentleman says, you know, I have, I have one person who I think is opening up a new, a new place out on a ranch and it was blueprints and, you know, I'll have her call you. Maybe they have an opening or something. So she called and just immediately I heard this voice and it was like a connection was made. Yeah. You know, so. And it was my best friend, Serena. It was Serena. Yeah. Yeah. Who, you know, to this day is just, you know, she helped give Pat the best four years of his life. Yeah. Which, you know, even though my son lost his life. I'm so grateful for those four years because he was able to make amends with all of us and we were able to be a family again. And there was some good, good stuff during those four years. So Serena's a, a saint. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think it takes a really special person to work with with addicts. And she got it. And she provided Pat with what he needed, a sense of family, yeah. love, caring. She's phenomenal that way. Yeah. But he was a real yeah. asshole. <laughs> The first couple of weeks, he didn't want to be there. He wanted me to come get him out. He didn't like Dave, mm-hmm. which he ended up loving Dave. Yeah, that's how that's Denny's how, yeah. out in the middle of nowhere. There's only three guys here. I don't like him. And it's like, oh, you know, yeah. what do I do? So, but Serena just like talked us through it. You know, I mean, we were talking to her every day. I yeah. mean, she did and that's not... what the families need. Oh you yeah, know? that is that's one of uh, one of the most important positions with any treatment is someone who liaisons with or is it liaises with the family networks networks someone who networks uh, or supports the family. Mm-hmm. And explain to them what's going on, why this is happening, why they're saying mm-hmm. this, why they need, mm-hmm. and, and regularly ensures them that this is that this is normal, this is part of the process, yeah. this is what's going on in your child's brain, this yeah. is, you know, just all those yeah. things. And she's just really phenomenal with that. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So we would, like, hear from her daily. Yeah. And they were there, he was there, like, a week and a half, and it was the, I don't know, icky paw, wiki paw, yeah. yiki paw, some Ask big, paw. big... Yeah. thing yeah. that he went to in Tucson. Yeah. I, and met, I met him there. You did? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, he he and another young man didn't do what they were supposed to do, and they went and they found heroin <laughs> I, and got high. And it's like, I don't understand that concept. How can you go to a town you've never been to before oh, and find oh, what you need? Easily. What you want. Easily. The same way you know, the same way, the, he, let me help you out. 
It's the part of town or the people that look the shady. Just find the yeah. shadiest looking human, the you know the sketchiest neighborhood mm-hmm. situation, and 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 you will find it. Yeah. So they did that, and then and then you know they were all supposed to be checking back with Serena yeah. after they went to this session yeah. and that session. I, I there were like about six that. or seven guys, yeah. and people didn't. And work. they like disappeared. They didn't know where they were. And they finally, I think they finally went back to the hotel because where are they going to yeah. go now? Yeah. And, you know, and Serena knew what was going on. But I think they said, oh, yeah, you know, we just wanted some girls. And yeah. we met up with some girls. And yeah, that was what to they told them. That's right. Because gir- she you know. was like, oh, so we had two clients yeah. go meet up with some girls. That's right. And I don't think Serena told me right away that yeah. they had the drugs, but he was just in hot water for disappearing and going yeah. and finding girls and this and that. Because I think Serena knew that. Melissa's living on the edge and this yeah. is going to just, you know, yeah. shove her right off. Yeah. And, you know, but she she was working through it with him and they went back to the ranch and maybe another two weeks go by and, you know, he's making some progress. And then there's some incident that um, Pat, you know, he's a grown up little man child. And uh, if you remember the ranch, it had open staircase and mm-hmm. then a little room up there. Mm-hmm. So Pat uh, and Dave was out in his spot. Mm-hmm. So all the guys were supposed to be sleeping. And Pat decided to have everybody get their mattresses, put them in the group meeting room so they could jump off the <laughs> landing. And and Serena calls and tells me that. And I hit my limit. The unconditional love was out the window. It's like, okay, okay, Serena. I am done. I am done. I am, you know, we're a police officer and a teacher. You know, we have a bank account, but it's not an endless supply. Yeah. And he's been gone, you know, October, November, December. We're into January, almost February. And I am like just flinging money out the window. And I can't do this. It's going to get to the point where I jeopardize my retirement. I'm not going to be able to send the baby to college. I, You know, it's like, I am done. He's not, he, you know, and I was done. And I said, you just go dump him and you go tell him to go live his life because mama, she be done. She's not doing this anymore. I'm not going to keep throwing money at something that doesn't want help, isn't going to, you know. Yeah. So, you know, and she, she was, you know, Serena, Serena just, you know, was worming her way in there, but, you know, he was... Not kind. Yeah. So she she said, give me a couple days. Give me a couple days. And it's like, I, I was done. I was really done. I was ready, yeah. you know. And I, I said, I said the, only, the only thing you can tell him is to, is give him the address of the nearest Salvation Army and he can go do this on his own yeah. time, you know. And so I think a couple days went by and another young man that Pat had gotten very close to left and relapsed and nobody knew where he was. And that had an effect on him. And and I, and Serena told him, Mama's done. Yeah. And I don't think he ever thought yeah. Mom would be done. Yeah. And we, he and I talked about that. And I kind of see that as being his rock bottom. Yeah. He doesn't. He didn't. Oh, no, it wasn't that. But for him to admit that, he'd have to be pretty vulnerable. Yeah. But, you know, that unconditional love with that little baby, you know, it was still there. But you weren't but dealing just, with the baby anymore. You weren't yeah, dealing with the I couldn't the good part of him anymore. I couldn't anymore. do it. I couldn't do it anymore. So he he um, he hit his knees and prayed for his friend, and then it was like night and day. And Pat, the boy I raised, was coming back, and the demon 
was slowly going away. I imagined the demon turning his head, yeah, you know, kind of like this. And Pat and Serena and the ranch are down yeah. here, and he's he's going, yeah, I, I can't deal with that. Yeah, and um, he did great. And from that point, he stayed sober for those four years. Uh, close to four years. Close to four years, as far as I know. Hi, I'm Peter Loeb, CEO and co-founder of Lion Rock Recovery. We're proud to sponsor The Courage to Change, and I hope you find that it's an inspiration. I was inspired to start Lion Rock after my sister lost her own struggle with drugs and alcohol back in 2010. Because we provide care online by live video, Lion Rock clients can get help from the privacy of home. We offer flexible schedules that fit our clients' busy lives. And of course, we're licensed and accredited, and we accept most private health insurance. You can find out more about us at lionrockrecovery.com or call us for a free consultation, no commitment, at 800-258-6550. Thank you. So I want to get a sense from you. What, you know, one thing, frankly, I'm curious about, and I, I, I'm sure other people are like, how do you, so I'll just use my experience and then mm-hmm. you, you help me understand I don't think about, unless my husband's doing anything weird, you know, mm-hmm. he's dry, like I, I, you know, he's particularly grumpy or dry or not going mm-hmm. to be, I don't really think about him getting loaded. And mm-hmm. the other sober people in my life, same thing. I don't really think, I mean, mm-hmm. someone has to really act up for me to th- consider that they may be using at this point in my life. That's just, as a parent, is that something like four years of sobriety for Pat, is that something that was on your mind? Were you kind of like, was it kind of the same thing of, um, he goes to rehab for 30 days, he's fixed. He's like, oh, now we're sober. We have momentum. I think we're in the clear. Like what was the mindset during that time? Yeah. I, um, well, I, I remember like back in high school and, and through the drinking, the 20, early twenties, you know, being afraid to wake up in the morning because who's going to call me or if the phone rang at night. Yeah. That's what my mom said. You know, I mean, just that fear. So, so yeah, no, you, I still worried about him. I remember about six months into the program with Serena at Blueprints, they went to another conference. Conference, thank you, in Fresno, which is just a two-hour oh, yeah. drive for us. And so I talked to Serena. I said, "Can can we come and see him?" So Dan and I both took a day off work. We and it's just two hour. We drove over for the day and. Oh, I can just feel it. I remember hugging him, and he had some meat on his bones. And I remember thinking, my boy is back. My boy is back. Yeah. And we just had a great visit. And he was excited about what he was learning. And he kept talking about the blue book. and Big book. You know, the, book, the big book. <laughs> yeah. The blue book. I love okay. you. And, and, um, it is blue. Is it? Maybe that's why. Because I did yeah. go get one, and I have read not it cover to cover. But, yeah. yeah. No, it is. It is and, blue. And just these cool people and met Serena face-to-face for the first time. Oh, okay. Um, though, you know, she was like my best friend because I talked to her on the phone all the time. <laughs> exactly. I don't think Rodney was there. No, yeah, maybe he, he was. Yeah, yeah he, he was. was there. And just you, you, just the guys, I mean, Pat had been ta- I'm not going to say their names, but yeah. just the guys that yeah. were there that, you know, were just like best friends for him. Yeah, yeah it was just, re- you know. So then he went, uh, and then Caitlin got married, right, like right on the same, practically the same day that he was finishing up out at the ranch, and we, he was going to move into the transitional program in town. And I remember when Caitlin got engaged, we made a deal that, okay, if Pat can come to the wedding, great. If Pat can't come to the wedding because he's using, 
he won't be invited. And we're gonna, it's going to be the best day ever. Yeah, like we're going to make yeah. it. And then once he got into rehab, we said, if Pat is at a crucial point of his rehab and he can't be here, he can't be here. And we're going to have a great day. So he was able to be there. And he flew. Um, we bought a ticket for Pat and his sponsor at the time. And they flew home. And Pat was Pat was a groomsman. Mm. And, of course, he walked Mama down the aisle. Mm. And, you know, Caitlin and I had worked on this wedding for, like, you know, a year. Yeah. And probably one of the proudest moments of my life. And I cried the whole way walking down the aisle, not only because I was happy my daughter was getting married, but my boy was walking me down the aisle. Yeah. And I remember Caitlin and I talking about if, I think she asked me, if Pat can't be there, Mom, who's going to walk you down the aisle? I said, no one. No one will take his place. I will walk my damn self down the aisle and be proud and happy. Yeah. Um, so that was really, really special. Really, really special. Yeah. yeah. And just that he was came home. And yeah. I remember he and his sponsor were um, at the kitchen table the day after the wedding. And, you know, we brought home all the leftover cakes and this. And they're eating a, ca- a whole cake. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They ate the cake topper oh, that yeah. you're supposed to say. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Just they both had forks and we're just going for it. Uh, and luckily, yeah. you know, really, who wants to Honestly, eat a cake? Honestly, I did later? it. I saved it, froze it. It's terrible. Don't do it. Yeah. Eat it. Eat it when it's good. Yeah. But I just thought that was a yeah. great story. And yeah, he, you know, and we laughed and it was it was just great. Yeah. So I would say then he then he he did the program in town for six months. Yeah. And, um, he was still at Blue, you know, we did the parent thing at Blueprints. He was still mm-hmm. at Blueprints, and he thought as soon as he went into the tra- transitional program. He could get his truck, you know, mom, you know, why don't you dad bring my truck out? And it's like, well, you know, I don't think this is my decision. Go ask Serena. <laughs> and I just remember him going over to Serena and, you know, I couldn't hear anything, but it was like I saw his mouth moving and then I saw her mouth saying no. And he came back and said, Serena says I can't have my car. <laughs> so, so, but that was a motivation for him when he could get his truck. Yeah. And uh, eventually he was at the point where he could get his truck, maybe halfway through. Yeah. And um, Serena's grandma lived, lives close to where I live. Yeah. So they flew out yeah. and then drove home. Yeah, I remember um, that. And I, I think I still worry. You still worry. You yeah. Know? You still, if the phone ever rang, at, at, so Dan and still... I really stopped breathing. And usually by that time it was like a telemarketer or something, yeah. you know, or a wrong <laughs> then number. Then you're really or, pissed. Yeah, at yeah, the, yeah, 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 yeah. And then, then I, I remember just having a revelation one day. Just it was like I don't worry anymore. How long was he sober? Do you think? Probably close to a year. Okay. Yeah, close to a year. And it's like, like I'm, I'm, yeah, just you know. And he had started working, and yeah. Um, and he went. When did he go to the fire academy? I think he started that in about year two. Okay. Okay. Being sober year two because it was three semesters. Okay. Yeah. And when, what led up to his relapse? Well, he, he, so he, I remember him calling us saying he wanted to go back to, to Yavapai Junior College and mm-hmm. go, go to this fire program. And it's like, Dan, Pat wants to go back to school, like college. He wants to, you know, it was like, huh? So, and he was just, you know, he had a plan. He looked into it. He knew yeah. what he was doing. He was just really excited about that. So, and he, he lived, after he graduated, he lived right next door to the Blueprints place in a, in a little place above the garage. So he was like still part of the, yeah. and he worked at Blueprints. Yeah. And 
he, so he started going to the classes and he was working, I don't know, three or four nights a week, I don't know, 12 hour shifts, whatever. And he was seeing, you know, he had to go see a, a counselor every so often and he was taking meds, you know, he was dual diagnosis. He was diagnosed with depression, a kind of depression I'd never heard of called dysthymia, which is like, and I look back on, it's like, oh, yeah. And then anxiety. And he did really well and yeah. would see a counselor and and he, he I, I really had no, I had no idea that he had relapsed. So he had relapsed during this time? He, he relapsed. His four-year anniversary would have been January. Okay. And of 2017, and so this was Christmas 2016, he came home for Christmas, and he had just finished the final thing of the Fire Academy, right. and it was that last semester, it was like a full-time, like, cadet yeah. thing, and he was still working, and I remember he came home, and you know, and school was kind of hard for him. So there were times that, you know, he had to take a test a second time, but they really worked with him. Yeah. Everything was great. We were so proud of him. He took all his state tests. He had one more test to pass on the state test. And he was working with one of the, one of the, I don't know, colonels of the fire department yeah. to, to get that. And so he came home for Christmas and I just remember he was really moody. Yeah. And crabby, slept a lot. But it's like, well, he's, he works nights. Yeah, he yeah, doing, he's you know. tired. So I just really didn't think too much of it. I just kind of stayed away from him. And that was really the last time I saw him was that Christmas. So he, and then, so and he, so got, he had, looking back, he had relapsed. And I remember when he left, I was cleaning, taking the oh, sheets. Oh, he had relapsed. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, but I don't think he was like fully. Yeah. Yeah, I think he relapsed that fall and what I found out later is that he stopped taking his meds. Mm. He just got busy. Mm. I know how that is that you just, you know, you don't pick up your prescription on time or yep. you, oh, you yeah. let this slide and this slide yep. and this slide. And and he he was somewhere and they were and he he relapsed. I don't know all the details. I'm better not knowing all the details. But I remember cleaning his sheets and there was like black something on the sheets and they were like ivory colored sheets and I just thought you know we go to the beach a lot it was tar or this but I look back and it was it was the heroin or the the soot or yeah. from the spoon or something and I remember when he first got there he said he had to go up to Paso to see a friend well you know who are you gonna go see oh you know just a friend well like who mom a girl I'm gonna go see a girl it's like oh okay well have fun and he came back. You'd think if he went to see a girl, he'd be gone a while. So he comes back, and I tease him about, oh, you struck out with the girl. <laughs> but he probably was was buying what he needed to buy. Yeah. And I did question him about that after he went to rehab again, and, and he denied it. But I, I believe that's what happened. So then we, we take him home. Oh, and it was also unusual because when he came home at that Christmas, he missed his flight. You know, it was like a 10 o'clock flight, and he, he missed his flight. And that was just was bizarre. Yeah, not typical. You know, he was able to get the next flight out three yeah. or four hours later. But anyway, and so, you know, we'd talked to him on the phone. And, and I, I remember that fall and that January, he would call us sometimes at 10 or 11 at night. And he'd just want to talk, especially to Dan. And they would just be on the phone for an hour. And I think he was lonely. Yeah. 
he had to move from next door to the to the rehab place because they were selling it. Somebody bought it, so he had to move. And I think he moved in with some guys who maybe were using or even though he told us he didn't. So so I didn't know anything. And then the phone rings one day, and it was Serena. Yeah. And I think your she babies was, were brand new. She was at my house. She was at my house, and she was a mess, and the twins were had just been born. Yeah. Because yeah. they were born January 11th, and this would have been she, – she came like three days after they were born. Yeah. So the – and he was still working for Blueprints and, and had progressed so that it was – it was obvious what was going on, and they drug tested him. So Serena just called. She didn't know the details. She just basically said, I think um, the guys at Blueprints called Serena because they knew that we were close. And, and you know, she said, and she didn't know the details. She basically said, you know, Pat relapsed, he's arrested, and he's in jail. And it's like just, I remember Dan standing right there. I repeated what he said, and Dan shaking his head. It's like, you know. So we Just called right, right back on the ride. Yeah. So we called and talked to some of the guys at Blueprints and and they gave us a few more details, but nobody really knew exactly what had happened and I don't want to get into all the yeah. details yeah. of of that arrest, but um he'd never been arrested for drugs and I remember reading that in the report that he stated that I've ne- you know, I've never been arrested for drugs. And it was a bad arrest, and he had taken meth and heroin, a firebomb, a fireball, a speedball. Speedball, there you go. You know, why would anybody want to do that? I have no, you know, I still don't comprehend that. But so we didn't know, you know, I looked up and I could find online that his name was there. And out of the blue, he calls us. So they kept him overnight and released him. He didn't have to be bailed out. He released him. He called and he was just, you know, broken. Yeah. Just, it was bad. And so, and I don't think, I just thought it was like a little relapse. Like it was just slip. a series of, you know, like he had a slip, was using some drugs, got caught, got arrested, but it wasn't, he wasn't full back into, you know, demon addiction mode. And then I realized he was. When you talked to him? Yeah. Yeah. And he was just, you know, and just so ashamed. Yeah. And so disgusted with himself and just, you know, it was just really awful. So we had, our granddaughter was fairly new at the time and we were taking care of her. So we asked him if he needed to go to rehab and he said, yeah. And I know I'd, I'd said to him for the rehab that this is our gift to you. We're giving you this gift of rehab, but we're not at a point where we can do rehab every six months. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I have friends whose sons struggle and have struggled for 20 years, and it's, it's heartbreaking. And so it's like, well, do I go back on that? Do I do Yeah. But anyway, Blueprints found him a placement, and it didn't cost us any money. I'm assuming that Blueprints had to kick in some money, but I know they do. Yeah. They do trades. And so, and the program was in uh, Desert Hot Springs by Palm mm-hmm. Palm Springs and Palm, Palm Desert. And Dan went out to Arizona right away. And he started, I don't know, maybe three, four days later. But um, Pat, Dan got a, a room at 
the Hacienda and like a little suite and Pat yeah. stayed with him and they went out to eat and I'm assuming he was sober. I don't know if he was needing to use then or not. I don't know. But it, how long was he at Desert Springs? He was there like 45 days. Okay. And he gets out and he's better. Yeah, he's better. We got calls from from the people he was working with. He was like the model client. Yeah. He helped others. Yeah. He, you know, everything went really well. Every time we talked to him, he was very upbeat. And Dan went and picked him up. And and we had to get, Dan had to go to court to get permission to take him out of state. Yeah, yeah. And I remember at that time thinking, I, I wanted, I want to bring him home. When he, when he finishes rehab, yeah. I want to bring him home. Well, we couldn't. Yeah. It's like, you, yeah. I wish I had just brought him home. He needed to be at home. I don't know. It doesn't change the outcome. But he went, he was supposed to be there 30 days, and he stayed 45. They scholarshiped him in or whatever. And then Dan went and picked him up and took him back. And I remember Dan spent a couple days, dropped him off. He was supposed to be looking for a job and, you know. Brock, get, back to uh, Back to Prescott, Prescott. Yeah. yeah. I think they hired a lawyer uh, Dan, Dan kind of did what I did many years ago, just went to downtown by the courthouse and started knocking yeah. on doors, and he found a really, really great guy. And I think before Pat went to rehab, he went and met with the guy as soon as he got back from rehab because they had to, like, set the court yeah. thing. And um, the thing that, that Pat kept talking about was that he, he had a felony arrest and that if you're convicted of a felony, you can't be a fireman. And, you know, and I would say, you don't have to be a fireman. You could do this. You could do that. We could do this. We could make this up. You could do this, you know, and, but that had a profound effect on him, a profound effect. So, uh, and Dan spent a few days with him and I, and I remember Dan saying, I didn't want to leave him, but I knew I couldn't just move into an apartment with him and, and hold his hand. Yeah. And, and he died three weeks later. So he moved into an apartment. And he was in that he went back to the same place. Okay. But nobody else was living there. It was a three-bedroom place. One of the bedrooms was um, a good friend of his, but he was always at his girlfriend's. So he was basically there alone. Who called you? The police came to our house, which was not an unusual occurrence because my husband had retired. And when you work for the DA's office, you get subpoenaed. Yeah, they, they just bring you. they just give it to you at work. Right, it's not like they could mail it. And so whenever so he he finished working, he he'd maybe been retired for six months, and during that time, police would serve him with a subpoena. Right. So I mean, I would say that happened five or six times. You know, I used to okay. think, oh God, what do the neighbors think? We yeah. got police cars <laughs> right. going up and down our driveway all the time. So I don't know if I heard something or, but I. Uh, we were watching TV downstairs. My dog was old, and if somebody pulled up in the driveway, he didn't bark anymore. Yeah. And something made me get up, and I was walking to the back part of the room, and the porch light, back part of the house, and the porch light was on, and there was a police officer standing there. So I didn't think anything of it. It's like, okay, they have a... Um, and there's times, once Dan retired, he didn't have a cell phone on. Yeah. And they, you know, nobody thinks to call you on your landline. So he would sometimes, you know, the police would come by to say, you know, you need to call. Yeah. <laughs> So-and-so, yeah, you know, because he had cases that went on yeah. for, like, maybe as long as a year and a half. So we opened the door, and I don't really remember. I said, Dan, the police are here. So Dan jumps up, and Dan said he knew. He knew. He just, he knew. 
I didn't know. And he said something. All I remember is hearing he passed and it like, it just didn't, it didn't settle. It didn't, I didn't comprehend it. I mean, I knew what had happened. So they said, we, we yeah, hear you. In- yeah, we're here to inform you that your son is in Prescott and the, the police went to his house and some friends discovered him and he, he overdosed and he passed and here's a number to call and they have more details. And uh, I invited the officer to come in and I mean, cause I don't know, what do you do? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what yeah. you do. And did you respond or did you just, um, I'm sorry, like what? Or just like, yeah, come just on in. Like, yeah. I mean, I was calm. Yeah. I always thought I would just like freak out. You know, yeah. Cause you think about it when you have a child, yeah. a child who's an addict, you think about what's it going to be like if somebody. Yeah. And so, so he, so they're standing at the door and I, I remember Dan like fumbling cause he's going to get this number that he's supposed to call and. He couldn't find a pencil, and he's throwing things. Yeah. And and so then I said, well, you know, why don't you just come in? And we went into yeah. the den, and I think I was just in a yeah, 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 a haze. And Dan gets the number, and Dan makes a call, and the police officer stayed. And then Dan tells me the information, and the officer said, "Would you like us to send the chaplain?" And I'm a little more religious than Dan is, and Dan said no, and I said yes. So a chaplain came. And spent some time with us. And while we were waiting for him to come, and I think the officer stayed there till the chaplain came. Yeah. It was like living a nightmare, an unbelievable, like, it's just really kind of a haze. I remember calling Dan's sister. She lived in town. I, I remember, I think she was the first person I told because Dan wasn't, I think as a wife and mother, you'd take care of your kids and your husband. Yeah, I felt yeah. like, so. you drop into yeah. the caregiver role. Yeah. And so she came over. And I called my son-in-law, told him exactly what had happened, asked if he'd bring Caitlin up and tell her. And he told her. He told her. And she was up, you know, 10 minutes later. And Megan was traveling in Germany with her boyfriend. So before the officer left, I said, I don't know what your protocols are, but could you not make this public or put it, you know, because I was really fearful because it was already out on Facebook. Caitlin checked and somebody had written something on Pat's Facebook page. And with the time change, I can't remember if it was 14 or 15 hours one way or the other, but we figured out Megan would be sleeping. And she, she, we hadn't really talked with her. She'd been gone almost three weeks. I think she was coming home in a couple days and Caitlin was able to, to get a hold of her. She had a phone an international phone, but but she only used it for emergencies because it was really expensive or something. So Caitlin called and told Megan, and she was, I think, due to come home two or three days later. So, so that that I know that was an immediate concern that Megan was going to wake up in Germany and check her iPad and see this. And Pat and I were never friends on Facebook, and I really don't do much social media anyway, you know. But I I so that was a huge. That's concern. So yeah. once once Megan knew, I was relieved because I didn't think that's something you should find out right. on social media. Yeah, agreed. And then I called my brother, and they like got in the car that second, and um, they drove through the night and went to see my dad first, and then brought my dad over, and they stayed a couple days, and we just tried to figure out what to do. I mean, there's things to do. And I pretty much had to go into 
take care of it mode. Yeah. You know, you have to find a morgue and this and that. And then Megan came home, and I remember Megan was home, and I think my sister-in-law was still there cooking food for everybody. And and I get a call from the mortuary that they were going to do the autopsy that morning. And it's like, why? You know, and that's what they do. And and that just horrified me. Yeah. We know how he died. Of course, we don't have a toxicology report. They pulled a needle out of his arm when he was there. There was drug paraphernalia. Yeah. We know how he died. He wasn't murdered. He wasn't. Yeah. He didn't have a heart attack. Or maybe you do have a heart attack. I don't know. And I just, the the thought of an autopsy being done on my son, I just thought that is just not peaceful. And, and I was like, this is not going to happen. And, um, and it was like, I had an hour and I just started writing a letter to the autopsy guy and they didn't do an autopsy. So there's all these things to get done. So you immediately, Mm -hmm. there's no time to like process anything. Mm -mm. It's completely like, okay, now you have to move up, like the logistics of Mm -hmm. it. And when you do that, is there any, like, does it have to be, like, does it have to be you or you want it to be you or you don't, you know, like other people, can they step in? Should they step in? Yeah. Well, I think it's different for everybody. And I, I, and I've, I've talked with uh, and have moms that have lost their children to addiction. And I think Every story I hear is different. Okay. Some people want to be surrounded with right. others. Other people don't. What did you want? I don't want to be, so I'm not a big people person. Like, I don't want to go in where I live to the concert in the park Tuesday nights because there's nowhere to park and there's hundreds of people and it's a lot of noise and you can't even yeah. hear the music. I'd rather, you know, put my headphones on and listen to something I really like. So, so I was really happy my brother was there. They took care of you know, feeding us, and but yeah. I really didn't have an appetite. He, we, I don't really feel like we had to make a lot of calls. I think yeah. Dan's sister called the yeah. the rest of the family. His two brothers went to tell Dan's parents. You talked about coming out of that and people and, like, the judgment of how, you know, mm-hmm. him dying as, as mm-hmm. a result of a drug overdose mm-hmm. and that negative connotation and... I've seen this with other people where it's there's a lot that happens right after someone passes mm-hmm. away. And then maybe a couple weeks out you, after the funeral, it all like comes yeah. down and then it's yeah. quiet. And that's when people just fall apart. Yeah. Did you guys experience that? And, and in that, how were people... The reason I ask this is I think a lot of people don't know how to show... This mm-hmm. is a really big problem. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people don't know how to show up for people when this stuff happens. And I'm curious what your thoughts, like how, how, what should people do? Yeah. Well, we had, we had um, like, and I did, I think I called one or two of my close girlfriends and they wanted to like do something. Everybody wants to do Do something, something. bring food, do this, do that. They want to come see you. I just didn't want to see anybody. Yeah. And I didn't want food. Yeah. And I didn't want someone to go to all the trouble to make food. And then it just sat there yeah. and I threw it away because nobody yeah. had an appetite. Other people do. Yeah. So I think, I think you know, what can I do to help you? And it's like, you know, so finally after about five days, well, oh, I had, I wanted Megan home. That took three or, three, three or four days. Yeah. And with the time change. So that, that's all I wanted. I wanted Megan home. And, and I, you know, when Caitlin first got there... It was a big breakdown. I mean, it even scared Dan because I went out to greet her in the car and he could hear me screaming. And then when Megan came again, 
But I think I am a very emotional person, and I used to cry really easily, but I'm not a big crier anymore. And I think going through this addiction for the number of years that we did, it just blunted my emotions. Yeah. And I think it's it's been two years since he passed, and I think bit by bit, more and more emotion is coming out, which is good. And, and I think, you know, another reason I w- wanted to do the podcast is because talking about it, talking about my son is like music to my ears. Yeah. What have the last two years been like? That's a really terrible question, yeah. but... Well, I think our saving grace was that we had a little granddaughter. Yeah. And um, I truly believe that this little girl was sent into our lives by a higher power who knew that this family needs this little girl. And uh, Caitlin, we could do a whole other show on infertility, and mm. and she ha- she struggled getting pregnant, and out of the blue, she got pregnant. Yeah. And Pat got to meet little Ellison. Um, yeah. It was a week before her first birthday yeah. when Pat passed. And so um, Caitlin and Dan and I at that point were taking care of her five days a week from, you know, eight in the morning till three in the afternoon. Oh, God bless you guys. And, and it was, you know, it was heaven. She was just a light in our lives. And, but C- Caitlin took a week, maybe two weeks off, and uh, we didn't have a funeral. We didn't want to do anything in a Tascadero because he really— Oh, you didn't do a funeral? No. Oh, yeah. No, and that was just, just not our thing. I had been to several funerals yeah. of— Addicted. Uh, young people who lost their lives. And that was—I mean, this is before Pat passed, but some of them were—they're all lovely— and it's like whatever works for the family is yeah. what you should do. But there was one in particular that the the preacher did all the things you're supposed to do and say at a funeral. And the friends got up and talked. And then he he said, I want to talk about the elephant in the room. And he talked about addiction and didn't try to sugarcoat it or or just focus on on someone's gone, but there's a reason they're gone. And if you are having a problem, this is what you can do. And and they had like a team of people there for people to meet with. And I, I just thought that was like really cool. That is cool. But we're, we're kind of a private family. We don't do big, big anything. What, did, so, what was it about the funeral that you didn't want? I like, I didn't like having a wedding. Okay. For me. I loved having my daughter's wedding. I don't like being the center of attention. I don't want want people fussing over me. Yeah, Yeah, I don't want to. Yeah, and so we knew we didn't want to do anything in Atascadero because he had more bad memories in Atascadero than good ones. And he would come home to be with us, but there were only like two friends he he would keep in touch with. And then, you know, his family and his sober family were in Prescott. So then the couple who found him, and we had been on the phone with them, so we knew more about what they saw and experienced, and they're the ones that called the police. Was and that helpful? It was, yes. Why? Because he was alone, and I didn't, I'm glad that a week didn't go by, and somebody who knew and loved him found him, and the particular person who found him, she was she was trained, I don't know exactly what, but she worked in, she's a recovered addict, yeah. working on her recovery, worked in the industry. I think was a you know an LVN or a, yeah, yeah, yeah. a nurse's assistant, so she knew what to do and took his pulse and this and that. Got on the phone. I mean, she went right into right. So you felt like someone, at yeah, least attempted. Some, yeah. Like I wouldn't want 
you know, time to go by and the yeah. police do a wellness check. You know, I just, that, yeah, that, that was comforting to me. And then talking to them was comforting to me. And I still talk with a lot of Pat's friends. And I find that comforting, very comforting. So, you know, and I wanted to know the details, but I don't want to know. Every, I don't want to know every detail. You know, I don't want to know exactly what he looked like. or and, and when Dan talked to the police officers, they assured him that he did have a needle in his arm. And, and they described that it looked like he had just fallen back on his pillows and died peacefully. Yeah. And I appreciated that. So then, so then it was this couple that said, you know, there are a lot of his friends here that would like to talk with you and share things with you. And yeah. so we decided to have a... Um, I wouldn't even call it a service, a gathering of friends. Yeah, yeah. And I would say there were um, maybe 30 or 40 people that came. It happened to be on Mother's Day. Yeah. Oy. Which was okay. Yeah. Um, so the other thing right after he passed was that Ellison was having her first birthday, and Kate, Caitlin had already planned it and this and that. She was going to cancel it. And, you know, Megan got home. We got through that. And then I remember thinking, you know, the kid's a year old. She's the light of our life. We're having a damn party. And it, it wasn't like we yeah. invited the whole neighborhood. It was, yeah. you know, the grandmas and the grandpas and the aunts yeah. and the uncles and a couple friends. And it was delightful. And she was adorable. And you cannot look at this sweet little girl and be sad. I mean, you are sad. But she's just, you know, she's just God, God put her in our lives because he knew this family needs this baby. And so... Caitlin Hatter. And, you know, how have you, what have you done to attempt, heal is, you know, to attempt to regain a sense of self mm-hmm. at all? You, you talked about meeting other mothers who have lost yeah, their children that to addiction. Is, that has been helpful. Getting back to the routine of our life. So Caitlin went back to work a week and a half, two weeks later. And, and at first I said, Caitlin, I, I'm not capable of this. And she said, whatever you need, mom, I need to go back to work. We'll, you know, and she was going to work something out. And then, and then I thought, no, I, so we started having her, you know, she was just a year old and feeding her and playing with her. And, and then we, we, we did go meet with all his friends. It was about three weeks later and we weren't going to have family and stuff going because it really wasn't a big formal service memorial. It was a gathering of friends and, you know, and I busied myself making some little succulent yeah. centerpieces, started gathering pictures. Yeah. My brother and sister-in-law came, Dan's one brother and his wife. I called and asked them to come because Dan was just struggling so much. And his brother, his brother, his nephews had just been to our house because they were taking their kids to see Cal Poly, where they're now attending. And Dan just always lit up when his nephews around. And there were there were nine nephews. Oh wow. Pat was the youngest of nine and then my two girls. And and Dan was just struggling, so I called his brother Mike and I said, you know, can you know, my my brother and sister in law were just kind of coming. I didn't ask them to, they just knew this is yeah. where we need to be. So Dan's brother came and that was really lovely, just hearing the stories and yeah. talking. Serena was there. Having it be on Mother's Day was really like a celebration. Yeah. And then we spent, I think we spent about a week there. And we, you know, with family, the girls didn't come. It got to the point with the girls, with jobs and the new baby yeah. and the, 
Just, it was like, just, no, just stay home. I didn't want it. I didn't want to have more stress added. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and it was three weeks later, and then we came home and just resumed our lives. And, and I would say I would wake up every morning to, it was like a nightmare. I was like, did this really happen? And yeah, it's like a, a nightmare. And I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever heal. I don't know if I'll ever get over it. I mean, I function. You will not I'm happy. get over it. Yeah. yeah. I have joy in my life. Yeah. I have love in my life. What happens? You, got, you and your husband, Dan, were married for a long time. Mm-hmm. What happens to why do so many couples who lose a child get divorced? Hmm. And I'm, I'm aware of that. I don't know. They're not getting what they need from their partner, but I think over the years with you know Dan and I have Dan and I you learn to know your partner really really well. Yeah. I mean Dan figured out that Melissa's intuitions are usually spot on. Yeah. If Melissa smells something. Yeah. I smell smoke. Chances are there's smoke. There's a fire, there's a fire. outside <laughs> or something. So Yeah. And and there, I think there's times where I have to take care of him and he has to take care of me and we take care of each other and we have we have our girls, so we just wanted to pull our family in Real close. close. Yeah, and there's things that we talk about as a family that, you know, that we don't talk about with with other people or even some of our other family members because they might not understand the addiction addiction the way we do. But um, I'm trying to think of other things I've done. I think the best advice was when I met up with a gal who had lost her son five years before in a Tascadero, and she said. Do whatever you feel you need to do to feel better. It's okay to sleep because I kept saying, I just want to sleep. I, she said, then sleep. You know, if you're sleeping five years from now, you know, yeah. I'm going to come pick you up and I'm going to take you to a counselor or something. Right. But if you want to sleep, sleep. If you want to eat, eat. If you want to go away, go away. If you want to talk to somebody, talk to somebody. If you don't want to talk to somebody, don't talk to somebody. So I felt like I had permission to. Yeah. You know, and so I did. I slept a lot, but I, I always could get up when little Allison was there. Yeah. And and taking care of a little one is <laughs> exhausting anyway, so yeah. I would go to sleep at night. But I tried to go to some counseling. I made several attempts, and it just, I don't know if it was the person I didn't connect it, but it wasn't for me. I remember going to the bookstore to look for books. So imagine me sitting there in Barnes & Noble, and I went to the section where the grieving stuff is. And it was all like the seven steps of grieving or the five steps. And it's like, no, 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 no. So I looked up some books and I, you know, I should have brought a list, but there, I could send it to you. There were several books that I, I read that were helpful. Well, one pops into my mind. Um, I think it was called Plan B. And it's, it was written by the gal who did the lean in. Mm -hmm. She's a businesswoman. Sheryl Sandberg. I think so. I can't remember now. But anyway, and her husband passed away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. she had all this great success. And she yeah, had that's her. She had kids at home, and that really helped. So there were several books I read that helped. Doing my creative things helped. Another thing I've always enjoyed doing. Um, I've always loved the beach. Grew up near the beach. We live twenty minutes away from you know Morro Bay, Pismo Beach, Avila Beach, Cayucas, San Simeon. Um, so once we retired, we were able to go to the the beach more. And we did. We take our dogs to the beach. We take the granddaughter to the beach. I've always loved looking for sea glass. But I noticed when I started, because it was just something, you know, you go you go to the beach and your brain, the it just clears your mind and you can get into your thoughts and it's kind of just, just meditative, relaxing, yeah. meditative. And all of a sudden, I started noticing heart-shaped rocks and heart-shaped driftwood. 
So I started collecting these heart things, and and I'm convinced that Pat leaves them for me. And I know someone's going to listen to that and say, oh, my God, this lady's really off her rocker because how could that happen? But I truly believe that I started noticing heart-shaped rocks because of Pat. I mean, physically, he didn't fly down with his angel wings and put the rock there. Yeah. But so I have quite a collection of of heart rocks. And we were just in Hawaii on a little vacation. I think I brought, you know, I thought my luggage was going to weigh say, too much. I was going to security because like, ma'am? All these little coral pieces yes. are shaped like hearts. And that I, and I know that some, some people have, um, I've talked to other moms, like one mom, awesome gal. She has a, like a memorial golf tournament every year. And she gets to get together with his friends and they put this golf tournament together and she does gift bags and and the money they raise goes to a, um, a pet project of her son's. Yeah. And um, other people have uh, done things. People have done memorial scholarships for yeah. their child. Um, they've. Um, Where did you meet these moms? Or how did you find most them? Most of them I knew of oh, them. Okay. And then either I connected or Someone, they, yeah. they kind of reached. They've, they reached out. Yeah. yeah. Or a friend would connect me. And it's not a, not, not a formal yeah. thing. Okay. Uh, and I thought, oh, gee, maybe that would be a good thing to do sometime. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's what I was thinking. I was yeah. like, is there a group that, or some sort of yeah. network? that Because I feel like nothing is better than someone who's been through what right. you've been through. Yeah, because you can just sit there. Yeah, and you don't have to say you anything. Don't have to, you don't have to try to explain, this is what I'm feeling. Right. And they just get it. And that's so comforting. Yeah. I would say I've always been kind of a private person. And I haven't been one to to venture way out. I don't have big social circles. I, you know, I have some really great friends that have been amazing. But I would say the last two years I have been more secluded. But I love being home. That's my thing. I love to be home. I love to cook. I love to sew. The little granddaughter's there. Love my dogs. We, you know, take the dogs out for a walk. We take the dogs to the beach. Dan and I will go get a bite to eat when I don't feel like cooking. But I'm not... And I think I've given myself permission to do what I want to do. Yeah. And it was actually your sister, I think you and I wrote about this, you posted one of her pictures of grief. Yeah. And, of course, I have that now. You, and, oh, you d- Oh, yeah. You you ordered it? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. And um, Megan, Megan wanted one. And so I just got one for Megan. And I'm waiting for Caitlin because I don't want to, like, here's art. You know, I want, yeah. you know. So because oh they're both that, like, different. Yeah. So I, I ordered it right away. Did you read away. her writing? That was, the, I saw the picture and I remember, and it was just titled Grief. And it like, it, ju- I, it just got me. And then I read what she wrote. I think I corresponded with your sister. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah. She and hit she- me like a ton of bricks. Oh, my gosh. She took... She took what was in my brain that I couldn't comprehend, let alone express, and took the words away from me in the most beautiful way. And just in a nutshell, it w- just, uh, you know, birth and living and dying are na- the most Na-, na- natural yeah. things in the world. And why is it that it's an uncomfortable topic to talk about? And it shouldn't be. And it says, and the other really great thing about grief is that it allows you to step out of your life for a minute and kind of like take an inventory, see what's out there, Mm -hmm. and discover what's important to you. 
because you've lost something so dear and precious that the riffraff stuff in life doesn't matter anymore. And so I've just let it fall away. You know, right. I don't I don't do as much social media because somebody would write a snarky comment and that would make me angry. It's like, you know, so I, I do, I get posts of your boys, which just, you know, great joy. Posts of this one particular family in, in Atascadero that uh, this young man struggled as Pat did, but um, turned his life around, um, marry a great gal, has his own company, has a little set of twin girls. Oh, <gasps> we need to get them together. Oh my goodness. I think they're a little older. My boys probably like older women. Okay. I think the little <laughs> girls are like four now. Pat used to go visit them when they were babies when he'd come <laughs> home. And they now have a little boy. And I look at like a post of them like on Mother's Day and then again yeah. on Father's Day with the whole little family and the little girls are in their little yeah. dresses and, <laughs> you know, and there's the nice... That nice picture, and then of course they post the one where one of the little girls in her dress is hanging upside down oh, on sure. a, on the fence yeah. next to them, and everyone's cracking up, and the baby's crying, and and I don't look at Pat's friends that have been so successful, and and I'm not sad because I can't have that. Yeah. I mean, I listened to your dad and you, and how close you were, and and I think I said to you, I would like to have that. Well, I don't. But it brings me joy. I am not mad at you because you're successful. I share in your success, and I have found that the people closest to me where I look at a picture of this family or look at your boys, I feel like you are sharing some of my sorrow because you get it and you know and you understand. So I love to see the yeah. pictures. Um, mm -hmm. Loved going to Serena's wedding and seeing her surrounded by love and joy and people that she has helped and right. and just that was just I can't even tell you you were there you know it was just a yeah. lovely day so I I go back and look at some of the posts that people put on Pat's Facebook page and I have to go through my daughter's account because we weren't friends but <laughs> um oh and in some of them I've taken screenshots and I go back and read them and I had no idea the impact that Pat had on some of the young men that were in blueprints. I had no idea. Yeah. I thought, you know, it was a job. You, do, you know, you, you know, Pat, he's not expressive. <laughs> How's work? Fine. You got some new guys in there? Yeah. You get along with everybody? Yeah. You know, I mean, he just wasn't. Yeah. And uh, uh, one, of, <laughs> one young man's mother who met Pat several times at the parent things, she wrote me a three-page letter. I should send it to you. I received that like... Like right before we left for Prescott to meet up with all his friends. And I think just a flood of tears, not sorrow, but pride. Yeah. Because the things she said about Pat, I had no idea that he had had this impact on her son and how memorable some little small actions yep. that she remembered. And she also happened to be there when Pat received his three-year pin. And Pat, like... The rest of my family, we're not big celebrate. We like to celebrate kind of in our own way. You know, he he didn't want to have a party downtown or, you yeah. know, he just wanted to get his pin. But just the way she described him yeah. getting his three-year. And, of course, that was the last pin that he got because he didn't quite make it to the four. So I have all those letters saved. I have cards that people sent me. I have screenshots of these sayings. Um, big Pat, you know, where the name came from. Serena actually gave him the name. 
because there were like two pants, and one was big and one was little. <laughs> but then it turned into something so much more than that. Yeah. Caitlin had sweatshirts made for us the first Christmas that said Big Pat, yeah. and they had the Yavapai Fire Academy Aww. emblem on them. And So you guys are finding all these ways to yeah. just keep him a part of the, yeah. the memory. And, you know, you described for me once, which I, I thought was really interesting and useful for people to know. You described how regular relationships are can sometimes be difficult, and I, I say regular relationships, mm-hmm. like not met out of a intense mm-hmm. traumatic situation, mm-hmm. because people are talking about things like, oh my gosh, my daughter got a B on her paper, and I'm just, oh, I, I'm so terrified. Yeah. And for, like, just that some of the relationships that you once had and maintained became difficult to function in because yeah. there was such a disconnect from yeah. what you both had experienced. I think the whole addiction thing is just so difficult and so overwhelming and and I still haven't come to grips with comprehending and understanding and I don't know if I will but I'm I'm on my way to I in fact I said to you I'm in recovery for yeah. grief. Absolutely. And and I'm trying to now fill that void, you know, and I spent a lot of time trying to get rid of the void. So talk talk, yeah. about, talk about that. Talk about that, yeah, okay. that revelation and, and all of that. I was going somewhere with that. Though. Oh, oh the friend, just just that. And I, I don't want to say, well, my pain is greater than your pain or no, you're no. this and I'm that. And, you know, I don't want to be like that. But I just had a hard time talking to some friends and acquaintances about what's going on in their life. <sighs> I don't know. Maybe I'm selfish or something, but it just didn't register with me. I think this is something that happens for a lot of people, and that's why I think it's important to talk about because it feels like, and I I have this in my life too, where at different stages of life, you experience such depths of life. Mm -hmm. And I had this experience not that long ago where a friend called me and was talking about her difficulties, Mm -hmm. like what was going on for her. And she was broken over what was Mm -hmm. going on. And my husband had just lost his job Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I was supporting our family and we were, and she was, it was a financial thing. And and we were, we were, I was terrified and I Mm -hmm. had two little kids Mm -hmm. and I was working and all this stuff. And I remember that the, she's crying about Mm -hmm. something that was like, I mean, from my yeah. perspective was, and you're just, it's so, like, you want to stay in the friendship and you want to relate and be empathetic, but there's, when you, when there's a distance now. Yeah. Which is uncomfortable. Yeah. And, but it goes back to what your sister said, is you identify what's, yeah what's working in your life and what's right for you and what's important. And I mean, that comes glaring out. You know, right. and so, then so you it, focus it was on that. Of yeah, like okay, yeah. this is not. Yeah, uh, I'm not going to stop at Magic Mountain on the way home and go on a roller coaster because I don't like it. Yeah, what were some of the big revelations related to addiction, related to recovery, related to the void? What were some of the big revelations that you have had? That it's not five steps that you need to go through you know, the five stages of grief. And when I get to this part, there'll be acceptance and voila. I mean, I had told you earlier that I lost my mom to cancer when I was 29. My mom was only 56. And I don't know if I should compare or not, but it was, it's harder to lose a child. Yeah. 
it was hard to lose my mother so young. Yeah. And I still miss my mom to this day. Yeah. I'm never going to get over missing her or grieving for her. But I remember with uh, um, my, I only had two kids when my mom passed, so she never got to know Megan. Hmm. But I always had visions that she would, she knew Megan and she would come and visit Megan. And she, 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 you know, perhaps it's just her living through my heart or doing something because that's what my mother would have wanted or that would have made my mother happy to put Pat in a sailor suit or to put Megan in a yeah. in a Polly Flinders dress instead <laughs> of something more current, you know. Just um ju- that it it's it's ongoing and and it's not going to go away and I think I'm at the point now where I want to find more things that make me feel better, useful. I like it when somebody calls me and they say, my child is in trouble, I have a friend, and their child is doing this, this, and this. What, what, they don't know what to do. What, what should they do? And, you know, I'm not, I'm not the expert. I'm not, and I don't want to think I'm the expert or I don't want someone else to think that, you know, but it's like, you know, get help. Go to Al-Anon. Go to, go to AA. Call the county. Start looking into rehab. You know, read. Uh, oh, I always recommend a, an article from National Geographic that came out maybe three years ago in the fall, and it was called The Science of Addiction. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've read it. I, I, yeah, I, I've read this, the study studies it was based on. Well, that's great. I'd be interested in that. But, but it just explained it. That, that particular article explained it in a way that made so much sense to me. And I've read a lot trying to find an answer. And that that really helped because it talked about the just the whole science behind it and the brain-based theory, which was fascinating to me because being a teacher, you know, we studied learning theory and brain-based theory and, and yeah. so much so much more has come out in the last yeah. 20 years than when I was in college. Learning styles and uh, I did a lot of training in that and it, it all just... Um, you know, how certain pathways in your brain stopped working because of the drugs. And it's like, that explains that. Because, you know, my my son was um, just this really great kid. My son, the addict, you know, I don't even like him. He was not kind. He lied and he cheated and he did horrible things. And, but my son, my Pat didn't, my boy didn't, he was you know, kind and loving and had a heart of gold. And he got this terrible addiction thing that turned him into this demon. And, you know, I want, I want to remember Pat, my boy. And when, when I reread one of these, something, a a picture of Serena's 30th birthday, when my son has a pink boa around his neck (laughs) and is in dress pants. And he has a, and we put a, uh, uh, we we put hair hair thing, we put hair extensions in his beard. Yeah. And he it's like just just so much that's my boy, you yeah. know, so much that helps. It helps me to some people have to take pictures down. Some yeah. people don't have a lot of pictures up. I you know, I have in my hallway I have you know, everybody's first birthday picture and their high school graduation pictures and Caitlin's wedding pictures now and I like having the pictures up and I, you know, I don't want to like turn you know, a room into a shrine or anything, but we do have the people from the fire academy sent us his fire hat yeah. and his boots 
and it has Bresnahan, and I have that sitting um, on the sofa table with a picture of him in his in his fireman gear. Yeah, and uh, and I have some of my my heart shaped rocks there, and and a- Allison knows that's Unky Pat, uh, Unky Pat, and she plays with the rocks, and you know, so things like that. Dan and I each have a bulletin board in our closets, and it's kind of it's kind of turned into an inspiration board. So I might be cleaning something out, and I find a picture of, you know, Pat when he played Little League and Dan was the coach, and they're both in short shorts, and they look like dorks, and I just <laughs> pin it to his board, and it, you know, it just brings... Yeah, yeah. It just, yeah. And I have this little box of his where he had written and doodled on it. It was probably like a little box you get at Michael's Craft Store that was made out of wood, and, and his chips are in there. Mm. And um, Serena has a couple chips. Yeah. I like okay, I know she'll take good care of them. <laughs> um, you know, and I, I have that kind of in my closet where, you know, you're getting ready for yeah. whatever you're doing. And that's, I mean, that little box is priceless. Yeah. It's priceless. What do you want people to know hearing this what do you, about addiction, about grief? I, I want people to know that addiction is not a choice. Addiction is an illness. I don't think Pat ever made a conscious decision to stick a needle in his arm. And then it took over, and it was like that centrifugal force or that gravity. It was like he had no control over it. I want them to be less judgmental. They're rarely, I mean, I wouldn't say lots of people said this, but I have heard people say, maybe not even reference to my son, but, you know, one less drug addict on the streets is, and that kind of cuts to the core. You know, I understand homelessness more because of what we experienced with our boy. You know, I don't want to see that happen, you know, but he was homeless for a while. And, you know, but all these people that are struggling with addiction on a daily basis are struggling. Yeah. And they're not doing things because that's what they want to do. It's... And they're somebody's child. And they're somebody's child, somebody's sister, somebody's brother. And I feel very fortunate that we had the four sober years because we have... So, so many of Pat's adult years were not good years. Yeah. And we had those four years that were so good. And, you know, I don't know. You asked me about how do, how does a couple stay together? And, you know, maybe if we didn't have those four years, we wouldn't have been able to make it through because I think there would have been so much more regret and you should have and I could have and you didn't and, you know, yeah. or blame or, or just trials and tribulations. But um, we had those four years, and and I know that it got to the point where, where Dan was not supportive maybe when I would bring up, like, going somewhere like Gatehouse, sending him away when he was younger or going to counseling or this or that. But he he says sending him to Blueprints was the best money we ever spent and the best thing yeah. we ever did. So I have no regret. I've, I've heard people say... That, you know, rehab centers are just places where people want to get your money, you know? And, I mean, there's good stuff involved. And it's not like, you know, it it was pricey. You know, it probably cost, it was probably a college education. But, and it's not like someone's, you know, I don't think Serena's moved into a Beverly Hills mansion and oh, drives no. a Bentley. It's it's expensive to run. And it went toward, you know, medication and a doctor's visits and psychologist appointments and and uh, one-to-one counseling with, with MFCCs and, 
group and food and, you know, I, I don't feel like we were just giving our money to. I, well, I was beh- I was behind the scenes, and I can tell you that you that it was not that way. And I do understand that there are places where that is the case, but there are also hospitals that are bad. Yeah. There are doctors and nurses, and you you can find absolutely. A, you know, yeah. I think that you know you find a place, you find a good place, and they're going to give you what they can. And, yeah. and a you know something that's so valuable, and you brought up Gatehouse was you know, I was there for 10 months and mm-hmm. it comes back to that 30 days thing where it's like, you can't, it doesn't, we're yeah. talking about a brain, you know, a, a neuro issue. This is not yeah. going to change in 30 days or yeah. even 60, maybe 90. And so, you know, what's cool about some of these programs, um, you know, blueprints being mm-hmm. one of them is that they have the client for long enough to make a, a real significant difference. Yeah. And it, you know, it takes that long to get all the craving out. Yeah. And uh, no, it's, it takes a long time. And I, I would say people who say things like that, that they're just out to get, that's very hurtful to me. But I don't, I don't even stop to try to educate them. Yeah. Because it's too passionate and emotional yeah. for me. But I'm not going to, call them up and have dinner with them tomorrow. So, I mean, it's a it's a crisis. There's a crisis out there, and I wish I could sit here and you or I could say, we need to do this, 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 and this, because I don't know how you fix the crisis. I mean, I, I had visions once that all the mothers like me were going to reunite. We were going to unite with our quilting bags, and we were going to march down to Mexico and take care of the cartels and um, I would. You want to come with me? <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, but when you say Mexico and cartels, we just remember I'm a drug addict, so that doesn't have this quite the same effect on me. I was thinking Washington. I that, that okay. That that, yeah. I, that is easier yeah. for me. There's yeah. not a, there's not yeah. a temptation there. I was like, oh, Mexico. Yeah. But there are groups, and yeah. I I do. There are mothers that I want to connect you with who are doing who are working on behalf of this issue and yeah. who actually there's been some marches in, in mm-hmm. Washington and, you know, that doctor who Pat was buying mm-hmm. from $500, you know, the, these, I went to, I was at one of my business school residencies in, in Baltimore, Johns Hopkins. And one of the doctors in my section is a, a pain medication doctor. Mm-hmm. He's a, mm-hmm. And he prescribed Suboxone and as part of his in his clinic, and I said, "Oh my gosh, I want to talk to you." You know, yeah. tell let's let's wrap out about what this is. I said, "What's your training in addiction?" Mm-hmm. And he because he was telling me, "Oh, I'm on an addiction board, and I deal with these." Yeah. Things. Well, I have no training in addiction. I swear to God. Yeah, that's what he said to me. Yeah, and I just. I, I mean, my jaw, I was like, what? Yeah. You are on the front lines. And I said, well, what do you tell, you know, it was just yeah. like the people who are on the front lines so often do not understand what we're dealing with. They've read about mm-hmm. it in a couple books, mm-hmm. maybe one book, two book, but we're not talking about experts in the field who who really understand what we're talking about. Yeah. And I... I think that there's a lot of work to be done. And I think that, you know, the principal and the police officer coming out and saying, my son Mm -hmm. grew up in a good home. Mm -hmm. I did everything I could. Mm -hmm. I loved him. Mm -hmm. And he put a needle in his arm. Yeah. And, you know, my parents coming out and saying, you know, this is that 
because the 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 image right mm-hmm. is you know these these bad like whatever the the mm-hmm. Im- these dark images and the truth is that it's it is so far reaching it, and it's touching so many lives yep i mean you know 20 years ago i couldn't tell you anybody i knew that died from addiction and now that's what my mom would say she says i i don't I remember I told her, oh, my friend went to jail or something. And she yeah. said, I don't know anyone who's been to jail. Yeah. I was like, what? Yeah. You know, I don't know. And it, it, it just has seeped yeah. into every. Yeah. And I, I know. And, you know, and even though these other moms that I talk with were great moms and are educated and had and they were great kids. And they, I mean, look, look at what is happening. It's not, it's not. This is not an epidemic that is being caused by poverty no. or stupidity no. or neglect. I really feel it has a very strong connection to brain health yeah. and mental health. Yeah. And, you know, mental health was, was, you know, a taboo word. You know, people didn't, you know, 20, 30 years ago didn't go to counseling unless, you know, woohoo, yeah. they need to go to the loony bin yeah. or, you know. Yeah. And... I could like get on the bandwagon with with schools and education, and um, but the one thing I would like to see more of is more help with mental health in schools. Yeah, because the kids I see when they were in kindergarten were experiencing the same problems exactly in sixth grade, yep. and then I read them read about them in the red light roundup in the Atascadero newspaper. Yep, and you know, and schools are a place to educate. And I think schools are making great strides, and I think there's more links for kids between school and uh, county programs and welfare programs and gifted programs and, you know, getting kids the help they need so that we're just not a bunch of different entities. We're, we're, I'm seeing more working together, but we have a long way to go. Yeah. Before we close, if there's a parent out there that is listening who has a child who is in the grips of their disease mm-hmm. and they don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. What would you tell them? I would tell them to just gain as much information as they can. Read. We all have computers and phones and iPads. Look up recovery, substance abuse. Read the article that was in the National Geographic. Don't give up. Your, that was your dad's mantra. Don't give up. Don't give up on you. How can you give up on your kid? Don't give up on your kid. Provide them with whatever you can. I mean, you can do, you can, you can get sober without spending money on a rehab center. You can do it in the privacy of your own home online. (laughs) You can do it through the Salvation Army. You can do it through governmental programs. There's just, but the help isn't going to come and knock on your door. Yeah. You, you're going to have to search it out, talk to anybody you know, and and anybody you know that knows anything, and I know that there are people out there that help can help you match yeah. up Case your manager. situation yeah. with with the addict's situation. Yeah. Because you know, I, I talked about blue um, decision point. You know, got Pat on the right path. The situation happened; it didn't work out for him. But I know they have great success with other people. So what what's going to work for one is not going to work for the other. And just find out as much much information as you can. And to the parent who's just lost their child? Oh, my heart just breaks. 
And I think if I said that to a parent, if I looked them in the eye and said, I know, I wouldn't have to say too much more. The other thing, and I did have to, I did come out and ask several parents, how did you handle this situation of using past tense when you refer to your kid? Yeah. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But if somebody asks me if I have kids, I say, yes, I have three. I can't say two because I have three kids. Yeah. One of us is not here on earth with with us anymore, but I love three kids in my life. And um, so that, that, you know, I didn't want people to say, oh, she's in denial because she's not using past tenses or whatever. But, um, you know, Pat is a part of our family still. And I think our other family mantra has become always a family of five. Yeah. Um, and we have a picture that was taken um, before he relapsed that was at my dad's 90th birthday. And it's the five of us. And we're laughing and we're happy. And I'm always going to remember us this way. Yeah. We're kind of finding our way as as a family that's experiencing grief. But he's always going to be a part of our life. And I can't pull him out of my heart or do something to get rid of that void. I need to fill that void. And I think it's different with every person. And you just have to find your way and cling to those who love and support you. And don't give up. Don't give up on yourself. Yeah. I mean, I had moments when I thought, I can't do this anymore. But then Ellison had walked through the door. Or my dog had to go outside and go potty, and it distracted my brain. And, and you know, life has gone on, and life is good. Dan couldn't wear his Life is Good shirts for a while. Interesting. Um, it's interesting the things that mm-hmm. come up. Like, the, mm-hmm. I, I was thinking about that, like, past tense. Mm-hmm. My, my friend lost her brother, and she says, do you, have any, do you have any siblings? You know, how do you answer that question? Same kind of thing. Yeah. Life is good. I can't, yeah. you know. And a lot of times it's just an acquaintance. It's a thing you talk about. Yeah. And, you know, so the, the girls will say, yeah, I have an older brother and a younger sister, or I, yeah. have, um, I have a sister or a sister and a brother, or there are three kids in my family. And you, you don't have to take it any further. But if, oh, well, what are your kids doing now? Yeah. Or, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm honest. I say, um, you know, my daughter's doing this and my other daughter's doing this and we have a grandchild. And um, unfortunately, my son lost his life and he's no longer with us two years ago. And if they want to know more, I'll tell them more. And I'm not, you know, I don't want to just corner somebody and suddenly <laughs> give them my life story. But, right. but um, you know, and some people are interested and, oh, you know, gee, I'm so sorry. And um, I don't know, we've we've had a lot of support, but I think... I think everybody needs to seek out what is going to help them fill their void. And I still have my void, and I'm not sure how I'm going to fill it up, but I'm attempting different things so that I can, you know, carry on and be a good mother and a good wife and a good person and help others. So if any word I say can help somebody else, great. Thank you so much, Melissa. Thank you. you. I think you're wonderful. and Thank you. I, I could see you helping the school systems and doing lots of stuff moving forward. So it'll be, it'll be cool to see what, what, this, what good comes, what more good yeah. comes out of this, because I suspect that you will turn this into something that can help other people. I, I hope so. I've tried some different things, and I haven't found my way yet, but... I have a valuable life experience that 
you can't study in a textbook, as does your dad. Yep. I mean, I really made a connection with your dad because he knows. He knows, and, and I could sense his pride of you. But he also has that hurt that will never go away. And I identify with that hurt. Yeah. Yeah. So, and thank you for what you do. Um, of course. Lion Rock Recovery is, you know, I've read about it online and articles and because um, I'm the kind of person that likes to know lots of information. And I think it's fascinating. And we're living in an era now that I'm like fighting tooth and nail, all this technology stuff. And I mean, <laughs> I still don't like cell phones. They irritate me. But, you know, there's so much you're doing for people who can't go away to a residential program for a year. And and they may be, I mean, Pat's addiction was long and deep. And maybe if someone experiences addiction and gets the help before it gets long and deep. That's our hope. The the program that you're doing is amazing. And it's, it's um, private until they get to a point where their privacy is, is not as important. But I understand why it's private because of the stigmatism and the judgment and yeah it doesn't define you as a person. We're starting this we're starting this program, I don't know what to call it, that where we are going to get groups of our alumni and 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 those of us who are sober and willing to be out mm-hmm. and we're going to go and do good in our communities. Mm-hmm. And our goal is, you know, one of the things that I've shared is that, you know, I am a tried and true drug addict alcoholic. And I'm also, you know, a graduate of UCLA and a business owner mm-hmm. and a mother. And I pay my bills mostly on time. And, you know, and I'm, I'm in, I walk my dog in your neighborhood mm-hmm. and I, I'm part of society. Mm-hmm. And, I'm your neighbor. I'm your. I'm at your grocery store, and so we're here. Those mm-hmm. of us, we're those of us who are sober and integrated back into back into society. You may not know. Most people, you know, I don't. I'm sure my, you know, the people in this building have no idea where I come from or whatever it is. But we do recover. We can recover. Absolutely. And many of us need to step out and show that that's just one side of the disease and mm-hmm. that the other side is still there and bring the humanity back into addiction. Yeah. Because we have, it's become such a problem that people don't, it's it, the homelessness, the, the mm-hmm. epidemic, it's such a problem that people want to put a Band-Aid on it. They want it to not, you know, out of our communities, send them away, whatever it mm-hmm. is. And that's the vision of the heroin addict, the, mm-hmm. but but the the heroin addict, I'm still an addict whether I'm I'm high or not. Sure. And so if that's the case, then I'm still that person, and I'm out in the community in a different light. And I think that it's really important that people understand and people know people. That's the thing that mm-hmm. changes your mind. Mm-hmm. The thing that changes your mind mm-hmm. is not reading it about it in mm-hmm. a book. Is meeting someone, getting to know them in their life today, mm-hmm. and them saying, "Oh yeah." I'm in recovery. And you going, you? Yeah. You know, you shop at L.L. Bean. There's yeah. no way you're, yeah. you know, in recovery yeah. or whatever it is. And and that's that's how we yeah. change people's perception of the problem. Well, and it, you're, you are like spot on because 
the people that are going to make the difference and make the biggest changes in this horrific epidemic is the people like you that are working on your 12th step. I don't know the exact words, but it's like giving back. Yeah. Giving back. You got it. Yeah. Step 12. Giving back. You know, you've been through your steps. You're experiencing recovery on a daily basis, and you're now going to help others because who knows better than you? So there's going to be some, some, you know, in education, I used to talk about, oh, what do the suits know that are making all these big decisions? You know, that suit needs to come into my classroom and show me how this works. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, the suits are going to be sitting on this board and that board and this board and that board. But I think the people that are going to make the difference are going to be the ones, you know, the mother like me who has a broken heart. Yeah. The recovered addict such as you who works on a recovery daily and is raising two amazing boys and running a successful company and the person sitting in an AA meeting who is going to say here's my number i mean it could be that you know i mean it's all it, it's all of it too my my sponsor is uh one of the top members of a fortune 500 company and you know, I know we interviewed a guy who is an attorney. He worked at the White House, and now he's a um, he is in Washington as the executive director of reentry policy. And he went to federal prison. He's been sober wow. seven years. Yeah, and he's an attorney now. Wow, making reentry policy. That's wow. who should be making yeah, policy. Absolutely, the person. And, yeah, and he and the reason life he's in, experience. Right, and he and he's an attorney, and he he he, he met all the requirements. It's mm-hmm. not we're not asking for a free pass. Right, you know, we're mm-hmm. asking we're asking for a fair chance. Yeah, we're not asking you to to say yeah. to give us something more than you know equal opportunity. And I think that if that happens, you know, those those of us who are in suits, so to speak, need mm-hmm. to come out because mm-hmm. there are a lot of people. There are a lot of people in recovery in suits who are afraid right. to come out. Right, and that's that's a that's a big piece of this. Yeah, and it goes back to the the shame or the. Not wanting to be honest, we don't want. We don't want to be judged. You don't want to be judged. And I, absolutely, I, you know my thing. I don't want my. You know, I have. To, I don't want my husband at his job to be judged. I don't yeah. want my children. Oh my yeah. gosh, your mom yeah. is this. Was this? You can't go over drug to so and so's house. Yeah, yeah. You know? I don't want that to happen. I, you know, a fear I've had is like. You know, if I want to go get another job and I want to work in corporate America and, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. um, will I be able to do that or will that be held against me? And and all of these things. And, you know, the truth is, is that we just have to we just have to close our eyes and trust that the process yeah. is going to take us where yeah. we need to be. Where work we'll your be passion. most useful. Work your passion. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, well, I just adore you. Thank you Thank so you. much for being here and Thank sharing you. your story. I really appreciate it. Thank you. The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, would like to thank our sponsor, Lion Rock Recovery, for their support. Lion Rock Recovery provides online substance abuse counseling where you can get help from the privacy of your own home. For more information, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast. Subscribe and join our podcast community to hear amazing stories of courage and transformation. We are so grateful to our listeners and hope that you will engage with us. Please email us comments, questions, anything you want to share with us, how this podcast has affected you. Our email address is podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. We want to hear from you. 